Hi, this is Steve. So normally in these previews, I'll lay out some historical perspective, filmmaking facts, or personal anecdote on our upcoming movie. But this week, we're going to keep it simple because Access Hollywood's Scott Mance is returning to the cinephiles to discuss Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind in honor of its 40th anniversary. If you listen to our previous episodes with Scott, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, and Blade Runner, you have a pretty good idea of what you're in for. As always, you can purchase Close Encounters or any of the movies we've ever reviewed on our website, cinephiles.net. So, that's Access Hollywood's Scott Mance to do Close Encounters of the Third Kind this Friday on The Cinephiles. Trust me, this one is going to blow your mind. I can't describe it, what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking. This means something. This is important. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello everyone again. My name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, host, writer, producer, and I don't know, a million other things I do in this city to stay alive and have fun and enjoy my life. But most of all, I'm an avid movie lover and I've been enjoying doing The Cinephiles for so long now, and I'm even more happy that we have uh, one of our guests, one of our special guests returning for this episode. Well, there's no better person to talk about the love of movies than <laughs> Access Hollywood's Scott Mance, one of our all-time favorite guests. Scott, welcome back to The Cinephiles. Fellas, it has been way <laughs> too long. It is great to be back, and I have to say, and I am not just saying this because I'm sitting in your place and you could like, you know, throw me out on the street. <laughs> I would never do that. But I have not had this much fun, this much, like it feeds my soul to be able to talk about movies so in-depth and so passionately with fellow cinephiles who love film the same way I do. And of all the things I've ever gotten to do in my, my 20 years as a critic, my 27 years living in L.A., pursuing my dreams, being on Cinephiles, thankfully, thank you so much for having me really is just up at the tippy top as my favorite things I've oh, ever, wow. ever got to do. And Thank I you, absolutely Sarah. mean Thank that. Thank you so much. Well, it is a joy and a pleasure to have you on. Yeah. And to talk. I mean, because this is what the cinephiles is. The whole point, <laughs> you know, began with John and I late at night drinking and talking about movies. Yep. And the, just the love of that great conversation and bringing you into that conversation. We were missing the alcohol. But other than that, <laughs> it's really, really well. Um, and today we've, tr so we've talked about what you consider to be the Citizen Kane of Star Trek films, Wrath of Khan, the right. Citizen Kane of science fiction, Blade Runner, is the movie we're talking about today the Citizen Kane of anything? Uh, yes. It, for me, it is the Citizen Kane of Spielberg movies. Boom! Wow. Because, like because not only is it up there with Blade Runner, it is really tied at number one with Blade mm -hmm. Runner, the original mm -hmm. Blade Runner, as one of my top two favorite movies of all time. So to that extent, yes, it does tower. For me, it towers over Steven Spielberg's other movies. Mm. And this is a bold statement for Steven Spielberg as my favorite very favorite of his movies and the reason being because it 
it covers so much ground. Mm. It is so ambitious, and it is full of so much emotion that will break down yeah. in this very special episode of Cinephiles. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and the film it. we're talking about, in case you didn't look at the title at of the, the podcast, <laughs> is Steven Spielberg's 1977, can we say masterpiece? Please do. Close yeah. Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah. Um, do you remember how you first came to this film? Oh, I absolutely remember how I came to this movie. I remember it came out in Philadelphia on November 23rd, 1977, although it actually came out in select cities on November 16th. So, by the way, not to date this, but we do have to make special mention here. Gentlemen, we're taping this today on November 14th, 2017. So in two days from the day that we are having this conversation, it will be the exact 40th anniversary of when wow. Close Encounters of the Third Kind first opened in theaters in L.A. at the Cinerama Dome. Wow. So yep. that is very, very special. That's I know we've amazing. been meaning to do this for a while, yeah. so it was <laughs> worth the wait. We timed it up pretty we well. It, yeah. But how did I come to Close Encounters? Well, my dad, who had taken me to see Jaws at an early age, and I hadn't been in the ocean since, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you and me both. he said he took me to see Close Encounters. Oh, wow. And this was, so let's see, I was, uh, I was eight years old in uh, November. I was about to turn nine. But uh, it, was, uh, it was a movie that, even at a young age, struck me because of the, of the intelligent way it depicted contact with aliens. Mm. Even at a young age, after watching Phil, all these like, sci-fi B-movies on UHF and watching films like uh, War of the Worlds, mm. Where first contact is not pleasant for the <laughs> no. people of the earth. Here was a film that encompassed so many emotions, and it was also a very personal story, and it was very smart. It was beautiful. It was sublime. It was funny. It was scary. It was terrifying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and it was my dad who took me to see the film. So for all of those reasons, the nostalgia factor only because of who I saw it with that it was my father who introduced me to a movie that I still hold in such high regard. That is how I was introduced to this film. How about you guys? (laughs) What about you? Well, I think I remember seeing it when I was a kid. And there was something about, and I want to say this correctly, and I hope I don't say this uh, incorrectly, is that sometimes I can dismiss Spielberg as a bit fluffy, as a bit populist, as a bit mainstream. And you can delude yourself that he's not an auteur. But he actually is, and I took a class at Florida State in the summer of one of my years that I was there, and it was all on Steven Spielberg. The book was the the what, what did they give you the handout? The handout book was three hundred and eighty pages, and right. we studied every movie of Spielberg's all summer. One of the greatest classes I've ever taken, and it matured me as a viewer of film but also as someone who appreciates Steven Spielberg and what he did. So I remember watching Close Encounters again that summer and enjoying it. But watching it a few weeks ago uh, in the Cinerama Dome because of the Fathom events, having you introduce it, having them do the whole, Scott, having them do the whole mini mini, uh, behind-the-scenes doc they did before the movie started, and then seeing the movie. I, for the first time, was affected by that film, I think in the way that Spielberg wanted people to be affected by the film. So I, in my way, I view that as the first time I actually saw the movie. Whereas right. I watched it before, but I didn't see it. 
And this time around, maybe because of my age, maybe because of my maturity as a, as a film lover and appreciator of film, I was able to understand what he was doing that was more than just frivolous. It was something that he had a lot of messages, a lot of things he was still trying to say. And this was the Spielberg at that time when he was still trying to say things that were a little darker, a little deeper, a little more complex. And this film really does it. And I walked out of the went see it with our friend Shannon McClung. Walked out. Shannon and I both were like, damn, that was actually really damn good movie. So but, but it's you, great that it still feel that way. You, you know, the interesting thing, and I never, never thought about it this way until hearing you say this. Yeah. But John, you know... When you think of Spielberg, and I say, you know, I'm using the hand motion in quotes. When you're watching <laughs> Duel and when you're watching Jaws, right. you're watching uh, a filmmaker who's very much inspired by Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Right. But with Close Encounters, Spielberg was starting to better, better uh, wrap his head around his own tastes, his own I ideals. Agree. Right. Close Encounters feels more like a quote-unquote Spielberg movie than Jaws does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think you're seeing the great craftsman in Jaws, but I think you're seeing the real person. And, and it's funny because you yeah. said I'm going to say where I saw it too in a minute, but you said uh, mentioned the fluffiness of Spielberg. Yeah, and that is the bad rap on Spielberg. Yes, and watching and Close I was Encounters this time, I really just go, that is so ridiculous. Because mm-hmm. I'm the same thing. You know, it's like that was sort of the common right because the uh, ET narrative of, things, of yeah. him. Yeah. Well, and because the this era of of Jaws into Star Wars into Close Encounters. Right. This is the end of the 70s auteur filmmaker era. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely that Spielberg is. and Lucas are the antidote to that or the enemy right. of that. And so when you're coming off of Scorsese and Coppola and Bogdanovich and all those people, and you look at Steven Spielberg, people, the reaction of the intelligentsia or whatever is, this guy's fluff. Yeah. Looking at it today, he's not fluff at all. He has Truffaut with the movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah. When, right there. when you put Truffaut in the movie, you as a as a film goer have to go shut the fuck up. Yeah. You don't know what you're talking about. This man knows, understands, and loves film and understands its power and its complexity. You can't dismiss him as calling him flaw. And also look look at talk about a filmmaker who was in the zone. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a filmmaker who was doing for movies what the Beatles were doing with music in the '60s. Sure, you know, you're looking at Jaws, Close Encounters, Raiders, E.T., uh, and then all the movies 1941. he produced. Okay. <laughs> hey, look, 1941 <laughs> is an underrated movie, but even then, all the films he produced, like The yeah. Goonies and, and Gremlins and Back and, to the Future, yeah. I mean, this is a filmmaker who was firing on all cylinders. And '77, I mean, you, you, you know, Jaws was '75. It was the first blockbuster to pass $100 million at the box office. And when uh, Close Encounters opened in November of 1977, it came out the same week. This is kind of weird because uh, Close Encounters came out the same week that Star Wars passed Jaws at the box office. I mean, it's like, you know, like these are the movies that, guys, these are the movies that shaped Mm -hmm. our childhood oh absolutely I mean, you know, we could go back and say oh i love citizen kane i love the godfather right. i love you know sound of music or whatever right. but these this is our generation mm-hmm. these are the movies that formed our love for film absolutely so for me i saw it in the in the theater at the cinema in Corte madera and i saw it with my family and it i remember i remember it so strongly as a kid being affected by it mm. and expecting and not being able to deal with it. Because the thing we're going to get into is 
this is this is a weird movie, and yeah. it is scary and dark, and and I don't think you can walk out of this movie understanding exactly what it was. And I remember it was a movie I watched over and over again as a kid. I remember when the special edition came out, yeah, and seeing, and I remember having this moment because Dreyfus goes inside the spaceship in the special edition, which he didn't do in the th- theatrical version, right? And I remember having this thing of like, this wasn't in the movie. And I remember at nine or ten, probably ten or eleven years old, mm-hmm. having that. Even then, having that memory of like, this isn't right. This isn't what's supposed to happen. Right. And the interesting thing that happened just watching it this last time is, in my brain, I always grouped it with Jaws and Star Wars, and and maybe other films like you know Raiders, and as the wave of the '80s films come, right. it actually doesn't fit in those at all. Mm-hmm. It is its own thing. And we'll talk, it's a much stranger, much more human and artsy film than those other, like other films are. Which makes it, which is the reason why I think it's timeless. Why it's still topical, why it still works today. Why audiences in 2017 can still see this for the first time possibly and be affected by Dreyfus's journey. What happens to, uh, I'm so forget the actual, Malor, was Melinda Dillon. Melinda Dillon's child, what happens in her journey and everything that goes on. We we connect now to these people who are off center, who are nerdy, who are not normal, who do these crazy things right. that test the limits of our understanding or patience because they're driven by something stronger, something deeper, something they need to yep. discover and find. That is a, as an excellent perspective, yeah. one that I never really thought about. But it, it, especially with today's culture, yeah. Uh, especially for what, what we do, yeah. Uh, this is a character who's much more relatable now, yes. As we are grown-ups, man-children, so to speak, <laughs> and so is Dreyfus in this movie. He yeah. never really grew up. But uh, going on what you're saying and how it doesn't fit in with those films, you're right. It, it's I think it's it's much uh, much more ambitious in its scope yeah. because of the way. It, it is so much. There's so much going on here. Yeah. And, and it's such a dramatic shift in tones in depicting Absolutely. each one of them where, where the tone of one never intrudes on the other. Mm-hmm. That's hard to do. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the backstory. Okay. This is written and directed by Steven Spielberg. That is an unusual thing. And, uh, and he was uh, really – there's this moment he talks about. Um, and I think, by the way, this and probably E.T. are the two most personal films for mm. Steven Spielberg. And there's a moment he talks about he's a little kid and his dad woke him up in the middle of the night and took him outside to watch the meteor shower. Mm. And I think that had a big effect on him. That moment of looking out into the sky and wondering. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, Spielberg believed in this. He believed that UFO, all the UFOs, which were very big in the 70s, he believed this was real. This was a real thing that was happening. Mm-hmm. This was also... You said, watch the skies. That was the working title of the film. Now, it was written and directed by Steven Spielberg, but it wasn't originally written by Steven Spielberg. Oh, really? I didn't know this. It was originally, ladies and gentlemen, it was written by Paul Schrader. Oh, wow. Really? Paul Schrader. Taxi driver? Wrote, yes, exactly. Paul Schrader wrote the original drafts of the screenplay when it was called Watch the Skies. Spielberg came in and did extensive rewrites on the screenplay to the point where Paul Schrader said, take my name off. Mm. And that is why Spielberg is credited as the screenwriter of Close Encounters. Now, here's the interesting thing. So Close Encounters, it is credited as written by Steven Spielberg and by most accounts. I mean, it really was. I mean, he got the credit and he rewrote it enough. It's his movie. So you have the score by John Williams 
which uh, which has a, the motif for when you wish upon a star. Mm-hmm. Right. When you wish upon a star came from Pinocchio. As far as I know, the next time Spielberg was credited as a screenwriter was 2001 right. for AI, artificial intelligence. Mm. That movie is Pinocchio. Pinocchio. Right. Whoa. Mind blown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. First of many mind-blowing moments we're going to have on Cinephiles. <laughs> um, uh, this is a big-budget movie. And after Jaws, he has the juice, mm-hmm. and he, you know, it's, it's doing it at Columbia, and he, this is a this is a big film in every single way. Um, he goes to, he wants great special effects. So where does he go? He goes to the guys who did Two Thousand One. He wants beautiful design. So who does he go to? He goes to Ralph McQuarrie, who did Star Wars. Right. And, I mean, he got the best, the best of the best people to work on this film. Mm-hmm. Um, and dur- he had this this idea came it was before Jaws and during Jaws apparently he was talking to Dreyfus a lot about this movie Dreyfus wanted to be the guy <laughs> Spielberg didn't want him to be the guy wow um, did he have anyone else in mind why yes he did well, who, who did he I, have Steve <laughs> um, the person he really wanted was Steve McQueen whoa you were just watching Magnificent Seven yeah we I were <laughs> Yeah, wow. he wanted Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen. So he calls. So, so Steve McQueen, sure, come and meet me at a bar to talk about it. <laughs> Spielberg apparently had never been in a bar. <laughs> <That> makes sense. <laughs> He's a very pure guy. Yeah, yeah. And you know, and you want to know why McQueen turned it down? Why? He said, "I can't do this movie because I can't cry on screen. This oh. character has to cry." Why does Dreyfus oh. cry in the movie? In the, sh- just, in the shower. Yep. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When he's like, I don't know what's happening to me. Right. Yeah, that's well, right. and also, we don't know what Steve McQueen thought he was supposed to cry at. There could have right. been some moments as well. That's a good point. Um, and then he went after the top people in movies. Mm-hmm. He went after Hoffman, Pacino. You know, all of them turned Pacino. it down. Pacino, right? Hoo-ha! And the, and the, <laughs> and you the, are the alien. And the whole time, Dreyfus, you can totally picture this. It's just calling up Steven. You really should catch me. You really should catch me. I really want the part. Right. Well, I can imagine Pacino. That alien has a great ass. Yeah. Your head's way up it. <laughs> Gene Hackman, too. He wanted Gene Hackman to play Ooh, the part. Gene Hackman. But you know what? When you have an actor who's so perfect for the role that you really can't imagine anyone else. Yeah. I mean, wait, wait, when you, well, not to jump ahead too far already, but like the minute you see Roy Neary in his home with, mm. with his wife, Ronnie, and his kids in that claustrophobic home where there's clutter everywhere yeah. and he's not paying attention and he wants to go see Pinocchio, the kids want to do goofy golf. Like he's already, he's already checked out. He's mm-hmm. already checked out of his marriage mm-hmm. and it's only a matter of time before he checks out on everything else. But, you know, the movie, like I said, the movie opened on November 16th. And uh, it was, uh, you talk about it being a big budget. A big budget back in 1977 was $20 million. And it That's grossed. That's a huge budget. That is huge for, yeah, for yeah. that day and age. And it grossed worldwide $288 million if, you know, for 19, 1977. And it was nominated for nine Academy Awards. It wow. won two of them for Cinematography and a Special Sound Effects Award. And it won the, uh, it was nominated for seven other Oscars, including editing, score for John Williams, art direction, supporting actress Melinda Dillon, and director, but not Best Picture. Yep. Wow. And yeah. what won Best Picture for 1977, Phyllis? 
Annie Hall. Annie Hall. Yeah. Which beat Star Wars. Star Wars, which yeah. Beat Star Wars! So Star How Wars. many times do we go back and watch Annie Hall? How many times <laughs> do we go back and watch Star Wars? Nuff said. <laughs> I, I, we, I don't know if you were there that night, but I remember my friend Michael Vogel and I, and I think a couple other film people, got into an argument for two hours about which film has the more lasting effect, Annie Hall or Star Wars. And it was a fantastic conversation to argue both sides. Interesting that because, you actually can argue both sides. Well, I think sides. you can. I think you absolutely can argue both sides. But I find it phenomenal that Close Encounters wasn't nominated, but Star Wars was. And I think Close Encounters is a better film than Star Wars overall. I agree with that. I, I, I don't think Star Wars... Obviously, Star Wars is a good film. We've covered it. But like, I think Close Encounters is a more complete film. I Here's what I it. think. I think we have Scott Manson, John Rocha, and we cannot go down this road. <laughs> That's a whole other talk show. My brain, my brain is spinning on things I want to say, and I will say none of them. Oh man! I, but, honestly, I agree with you, John. I'm with you on that. Yeah. But, but uh, Empire Strikes Back is that a better movie than Close Encounters? Okay. Uh, yeah. Is that? Are you okay with that? I'm okay with that. Right. I'm okay with not discussing <laughs> it any further. <laughs> as much as I want to. There'll be other times. Yeah, maybe um, Patreon, maybe. All right. maybe Patreon. But I think like uh, this movie, they started, they, they shot for a little bit towards the end of 1975 because they were trying to, uh, they were trying, the, it's, uh, Columbia Pictures, which was on the verge of bankruptcy in the mid-70s, mm-hmm. they right. had to make some sort of like tax break. In, in, and the only way to do that was to start filming Anything they'll do anything at the end by by the end of 1975. So they shot like a very very little, and then they didn't shoot again until the summer of 1976. Do you know what they shot? I don't know what they shot. I don't know what they shot, but Mm. I hope I'm guessing it wasn't uh, an extensive scene because they just had to get something something on the books. Sometimes business drives art, you know, in all sorts of weird ways. Mm -hmm. Um, so back to Richard Dreyfus, the way he finally got the gig, which I loved, is he calls up Stephen, which in my mind he's like calling him every other day, Um, (laughs) and he said. Stephen, this character needs to be a child. That's what this... He has to be childlike. And Spielberg went, you're right. And that's how he got the gig. Yeah. And, and, and what Spielberg says about Dreyfus is that when he wanted to put himself in a film, he cast Richard Dreyfus. And there's something... I love... I really... Oh, I lo- wow. love... Yeah. I could totally see yeah. that. Yeah. That Richard Dreyfus is sort of the big screen, on-camera yeah. version sure. of Spielberg himself. Yeah. yeah. I well, absolutely see that. Well, And this is such a personal film. That I, I, you know, I love Richard Dreyfus. I and and he's one of those actors who I don't think gets kind of the praise that he deserves. And in, there are several movies where he is so damn good. And this one, this one ah, might be his best performance as far as I'm it's concerned. It's because he, he has a reputation of being a phenomenal asshole too. And I think that's why he doesn't get the kind of love yeah. that he maybe deserves or merits. Same thing with Dustin Hoffman. Hoffman had a terrible reputation coming out right. of that time as well. So sometimes that can, it can rub bleed, off. Yeah, it that can bleed out, out yeah. into the conversations yeah. and into the articles that you read about people. I, so, and look, yeah. Dreyfus sort of like, you know, fell off the map for a little while yeah. uh, after after nineteen eighty and then he made a made a big comeback in the mid eighties with like Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Right. And, what know, about Tim Bob? Man, those, all those yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. what about Bob? Tim Man is great. The, I love Tim, Tim Man. Man is a great movie. Right. I love Tim um Man. But uh, but with regards, you know, when you say that Close Encounters is a personal film, I, I agree with that. It's definitely something that he was inspired by when he was little, mm. uh, and it was the first of a few times that he dabbled in aliens and science fiction. Uh, and it is also a film. If you think about it, fellas, Spielberg would not have been able to make E.T. 
if he had not done Close Encounters first. Agreed. Mm, totally they are important. both dealing with first contact. Yep. One of them is on a global scale. Mm-hmm. One of them is on a personal scale. And within the global scale of Close Encounters is a very personal story that went more personal with E.T. because of the family factor, being a child of divorce, because of the way he shot the film from mm-hmm. the waist down until you see the rest of the adults. Yeah. I mean, E.T. is a masterpiece. It absolutely is. But so is Close Encounters because of the scope of the film. And, uh, it, it, and then, of course, let's not forget... The music of this movie is yeah. one of the things that I love the most about about this film, even as a little kid when I saw it. But when I saw it again over the summer for the uh, the, the the advance of the 4K Blu-ray that mm-hmm. came out, so I, it never fails that the music is always what gets to me gets to me the most, and it brings me to tears. It really, really mm. does. I don't care how many times I watch Close Encounters. When you get to the end of the film, you know the big the big showdown, the the money shot, so to speak, mm-hmm. with all the UFOs and uh, flying around Devil's Tower. It's just so sublime, and the score just how John Williams was able to do compose and conduct the scores for Close Encounters mm-hmm. and Star Wars at the same time is mind boggling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really, really is. Well, th- it's. We can have lots of arguments of who the greatest filmmakers of all time. It's hard not to argue that John Williams is the greatest composer. Of all yeah, time. I think Bernard Herrmann is the only one that even remotely comes close. I completely agree. But I, look, I but love his films, Herman. but his films aren't anywhere near in the scope that Williams has to do. Like in terms of the expansiveness of those films. Well, and so many decades where he's yeah. still just doing it. So much so that he's still working now. Yeah, the Star Wars yeah, stuff. Yeah, definitely. What do you think? Should we get into the movie? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. All right, we start in Mexico. And by the way, I should say, there are three versions of this, or maybe there are more, three that I know of. Three, yeah. They have the original cut, the special edition, and then the director's cut. And I watched the director's cut for this, and something I should have done, but I didn't, is I don't have all the detailed of, this was in this one, this is in that one, this, I don't really, I know the basics, but you might might, might know more. But but we start in Mexico, and it's pretty mysterious what the hell is going on. Okay, now originally, the film was not supposed to start with this shot in Mexico. Mm. The movie was supposed to start at an airport hangar where the, uh, the interpreter, uh, David Laughlin, meets France, uh, Francois Lacombe yeah. for the, the first film, time yeah. in a limousine. Mm. And like as filming was progressing and they were going back and looking at the film, Spielberg thought like the movie needed a bigger punch to start the mm. movie. So he, he, put, he got rid of that scene, the opening scene that he originally had, with uh, Bob Balaban mm-hmm. and Francois Truffaut. And instead, the last scene that was filmed for the movie became the new first shot mm. of the film. Wow. Wow. And that is what we see in Mexico. And it is a doozy. It's mm-hmm. amazing. Well, and this is the thing. Th- listening to what Spielberg, Spielberg said about this film throughout, it really sounded like he was just playing with his toys. Mm-hmm. Like he had so much power after Jaws that he was just like, I have this idea. I have this idea. And people were running and scurrying. Let's do that. And he tried all sorts of crazy stuff, Mm -hmm. some of which doesn't end up in the film. And this is like, yeah, let's have this crazy, windy, mysterious Mexico opening. It's gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And the opening credits, this is something from the the very beginning, from the before you even see like the title cards announcing the studio, who the producers are. And you hear very, very slowly the score sort of slowly fade in yeah. and 
and it it already sounds like it's alien. It already sounds like it's out of this world. Mm -hmm. And as that score builds, as the credits continue to get rolled out, and the score builds and it builds, right away, uh, as you know, with the, the climax of that moment in the score, you could see an alien standing there, and it would make sense. Absolutely. And instead, you see a flash of white light. <laughs> And you were in the desert, yep. and it is so windy, it is so dusty, the sand is blowing all over the place. You feel like you need to put glasses on and a towel around your head yep. to keep yourself shielded. It's so effective, that scene. And we meet Bob Balaban, who is thrown in to be the interpreter mm-hmm. for Francois Truffaut. One of the interesting things I found out is at his audition, they ask Bob Balaban if he could speak French. And he says, in beautifully accented French... I only speak a tiny bit of French. I don't really speak it very well or something like that. <laughs> and they, the none of them in the room speak French. So they go, oh, he speaks French. Right. And they give him the job. <laughs> so begins a, a decades-long career. About <laughs> He's Bell fantastic. Band. And yeah. we meet the great Francois Truffaut, mm. who I don't think we can express how important this guy is to the lovers of film and filmmakers yeah. at this time. Yeah. Now, obviously, best known as a director. Yeah. Yeah. But French this was New the Wave, only yes. American film that he ever Ever acted in oh, wow. that he did not direct himself. Well, the only film he ever acted in that he didn't direct himself. Mm. And when he agreed to play Truffaut, uh, 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 Lacombe yeah. uh, and uh, Claude Lacombe, he he told Spielberg, "I will act in your movie, and that is it." Mm-hmm. Like he really laid the law down. Like I'm not going to help yeah. you out as a director. I'm not going to be your first <laughs> AD. I am just going to be your actor, and that is all. So you're trying to tell me there was a prickly French guy? Is that what you're trying to tell me? No, that's not at something all. new. Is that something new? In the I don't think world? he was prickly at all. From everything I hear, he is lovely and warm. No, no, no. Yeah. But I mean, just the idea that he'll only do this. You know, I think that's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what? I'm not the biggest Truffaut fan as a director. I don't like 400 Blows. I'm not a Jules. I'm not Jim. either. I'm not. But yeah. Goddard, Goddard is my. That's my guy. I love Breathless. Breathless. I will watch Breathless. it a million times a day. It, I love that film. But for some, but I love Truffaut in this movie. I love how earnest he is as an actor. And all these guys, these French New Wave directors, all started as actors initially, mostly, and then moved into directing film and with their Cahir du Cinema and all that stuff. It was fantastic. So to see Truffaut even in 2017 in this film is so much fun for me. Yeah, it's such a, it's such a well executed scene because like yeah. what, what you don't know what's going on or why they're there. Yeah, and the, and then when you see the reveal. Of 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 the planes, yeah. of Flight 19, yeah. which was lost over the Bermuda yeah. Triangle in 1945, and they're reading off the serial numbers, and it looks like they just got there. They look brand freaking spanking new, yeah. and the, the they're working. They have pictures of the families and the kids on the cockpits yeah. of the of, of the flight planes, and uh, when they 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 go to the sort of senile guy, I guess he's a you know mentally challenged guy, mm-hmm. and he's Half his face is sunburn, and you know, Claude Lacombe even says, uh, "You know, is it sunburn?" And <laughs> and like, where did this come from? And he goes, uh, uh, "You know, what happened to you?" And he goes, uh, "The sun came up last night." He said it sang to him. Yeah. It was the bright light. He thought it was the sun. Mm-hmm. And what did it sing? Do 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 do. I mean, yeah. it's chilling. It's mm-hmm. chilling to think, like, now you know what goes on in the movie. Like, this, this slow reveal and the way it mm-hmm. all comes together until it really does come together at the end. Well, this is the thing we talked about. It's come up over and over, over again on The Cinephiles, which is that 
most movies are mysteries. Mm -hmm. Is that the whole point is you're watching this going, this is crazy, fascinating stuff. I want to know what's going on. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old. And this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. And then we go from there, we go to an air traffic control thing, and the, the, we have people talking to planes, and the planes, sees, they say they see something, and there's bright lights. And what's great about this scene that I think is that we, the audience, we know what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. Because there's an interesting thing in most movies is that whatever weird, mystical thing is happening in a movie, that's true. <laughs> you know, if we're watching a werewolf movie and everyone doesn't believe in werewolves, werewolves are real. Yeah. So we know what the what the pilots in the airplanes are seeing. They are seeing UFOs. But the tension in the scene is everyone trying to figure out what is going on. Mm-hmm. Aries 31. Aries 31 is the plane that is that they're talking to. And they're all real air traffic controllers in that scene. Oh, wow. They are not actors. Oh, really? So that really... You know, that was a brilliant stroke mm-hmm. to use real air traffic yeah. controllers because they're going to, that's their job. They yeah. don't have to act. They're doing right. their job. And, and again, the UFOs are talked about, but they have, they're, they're not seen yet. Mm-hmm. Like the, the slow build to all this right. is really extraordinary. Yeah. Well, and they yeah. ask the question, do you want to report a UFO? EWA-517, do you want to report a UFO? EWA-517, do you want to report a UFO? Over. Negative. We don't want to report. Aries-31, do you wish to report a UFO? Over. Negative. We want to report one of those either. That's just great. Yeah. And then we go to Muncie, Indiana, to this gorgeous nighttime shot of this house in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And we see these toys... Little monkey starts doing his little gong. Which is, by the way, is scary as shit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's nice and nice and quiet. You hear mm-hmm. the wind coming in through the windows. Yep. It's a nice serving house in the middle of nowhere. Countryside. Yeah. And then, eat, eat, eat. And then, <laughs> ching, 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 ching. And look with care for the shape of a square. <laughs> <laughs> and we meet our kid, whose name is, I think, Barry Giller? Giller? Uh, Carrie Guffey. Carrie, but his that's the actor's oh, name. The yeah, act, yeah. yeah. Carrie, Carrie Guffey, and the actor is Barry, right? Yeah. Yeah. That is a cute kid. Yes. 
He has a high level of cutitude. Mm-hmm. And he also was so good playing Barry, and he got his takes from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And Spielberg gave him a nickname, One Take Carry, yeah. because he was so good at getting his marks, you know, hitting his marks and doing his scenes, you know, wow. usually in one take. And this filmmaker was so taken by Carrie Guffey's performance as Barry in Close Encounters. Stanley Kubrick wanted to use this kid as Danny Torrance wow. in The Shining. Wow. But Close Encounters is the only movie that Carrie Guffey ever made. Oh. Wow. Never wow. acted again. I have a theory, by the way, about one toy, one take carrier. One what take. is it? So, so because I, I I listened to an interview with the kid now grown mm. up, uh, and he and he told it exactly how you told it that he was that he was so you know got it on the first cake. They actually made a T shirt that said one take, Gary, and all this mm. stuff, and he was really proud of it. And then there's an interview with Spielberg. Here's how he said it. He said he was so spontaneous that he reacted so well in the first cake take. We had to get it on the first take because. He basically implied, like, after that, he wasn't so good. (laughs) (laughs) And this is this thing about directing is sometimes you say a thing to an actor in a certain way because you want to be supportive of them, but it isn't exactly the (laughs) truth. And all he did all Spielberg sounds like he was great directing this kid. He did things like he said, I'm going to give you a present. And he had a present that was all wrapped up. And what he's reacting to off screen when he's looking at the aliens is Spielberg slowly unwrapping the present and taking out the toy. Wow. And what, toys. Yeah, toys. toys. That's why he says toys. Oh, at one point, he had a guy dressed up in a gorilla suit to surprise him. <laughs> so he comes around a corner and there's a guy in a gorilla suit. Scared the crap out of him, but. right? But but you know that scene where where uh, we are in the house, you know, uh, Barry is up. Yeah. Uh, uh, what's her name? Melinda Dilla's character mm-hmm. is uh, what is her name in the film? Jillian. Jillian. Mm-hmm. So she's she's in bed. You know, my my take is that that she's got a little bit of a drinking problem. Mm-hmm. You know, she's kind of passed out mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. her bed. She's a little out of it when she wakes up, but when Barry. Is is going, you know. He sees all the toys coming on to life. So for a little kid, that's that's kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that's yeah. kind of cool. Like a grown up would be terrified yeah. that these toys are coming to life. But a little kid is excited. He's like, "Wow, this is really really cool. This yeah. is magic." But then this is a brilliant way that the film is directed in this particular scene, because we don't see the aliens. We don't see really a whole lot. We just see. Maybe a little bit of lighting right. where the aliens are using their flashlights to look around the house. Like when Barry goes down the stairs towards the kitchen, yeah. you see for like a split second flashlights on the floor. And then when Barry comes around the corner and he looks in the kitchen and he sees that the uh, uh, sodas are all open and everything like that. And, and he looks up and he's looking back and forth and he smiles mm-hmm. like a grown-up would have been terrified to see what he is seeing. Right. But he is, like, he thinks this is really cool. And they're about his height, remember, because the aliens are pretty small. Yeah. And I'm going to say, and I always felt this way, didn't Barry look like the aliens? Don't you think he looked like mm. them a little bit? Maybe. With the way his nose was shaped and the way his face was shaped, he actually looked a lot like the aliens you see at the end of the movie. Hmm. It's interesting. No, I hadn't thought about it, but okay. sure. And he goes outside, and he runs off. Um, and it's funny seeing a kid just run out of a house mm-hmm. at night today in 2017. Mm-hmm. Whereas probably there were kids playing outside in Indiana and the, oh, yeah. you know, all the time. That would be pretty normal. Now, when you see the exterior shots, 
in this movie, the outside shots. They're, they're really gorgeous. Mm-hmm. The, the cinematography is really gorgeous. Yeah. But the fact is that any time you saw an exterior shot in this movie, it was a special effect. Yep. It was not. Wow. Yeah, I, I, it was not. And I always thought there was something really unique about the way the exterior shots looked in this film. Mm-hmm. The cinematography, which won you know, Vilma Sigmund, was, was a, a, a one cinematography, yeah. uh, is like when you see the outside shot outside uh, about Jillian and Barry's home, when you see Roy Neary driving through the countryside and there's a shot of the truck in the distance and the sky above and definitely towards the end, the sky above Devil's Tower. Mm. It is all those shots, all of the sky shots. They are all special effects. None of it is real. And I don't know what it is, but I think they developed a new method of shooting starscapes for this film, but I couldn't tell you what it is other than that it's different and it looks gorgeous. All right, let's go meet Richard Dreyfuss and his family. Oh, wow. I think Steven Spielberg shoots family life, suburban family life, in a way that we had never seen on film before. Mm -hmm. It is a completely, like previous to this, there was father knows best sort of thing. And there were movies about parents where you would see the kids, but it wasn't really about the kids. And movies about kids where you kind of see the parents. But the chaos and the wildness and the humanness and unpredictableness of suburban 1970s family life I it, there's nothing like it. The Steven Spielberg introduced mm-hmm. an entirely new way of looking at families. But at the same time, and I and I said this a little bit before, mm. the minute you meet Roy Neary, he's on his way out. Yeah, he's distra- the newspaper is more interesting than anything around him, or, or what he's looking at. You know, is all more everything around him is more interesting than his family. He's and always just, paying and attention his wife. to yeah. anything else, yeah. other than the his TV family or the, the trains, or the trains. Whatever it is, whatever is, is, is in front of him is more important than his family I or his kids. I never had this thought. Now that you're saying it, I think you're yeah. both totally right. Yeah, yeah I don't, but I don't I think it's a think, negative. I didn't think of him as a guy. He's certainly distracted yes. and childlike. But I hadn't thought like, oh, he's on his way out from this well, family. Well, look at, look at the way Ronnie, his wife, Terry Gar, who's yeah. terrific in the film. Yeah, she is. Yeah. Look at the way she treats him. It's our third Terry Gar She treats Gar him yep. like a kid. Yeah. yeah. She treats him like a kid because he's got all his clutter all over the place. Right. And she's like making a big deal because like, this is my desk. You're not supposed to put stuff in my area. Like, right. really? I mean, I mean, come on. It's very domestic stuff that people argue about all the time. But, but Spielberg described Ronnie to Terry Gar by saying, this is, this is where this person is. This is this person's life. This is all she's got is her family. She was a high school sweetheart, high school cheerleader. Her best days ended with that. That's all. That's wow. it. Mm. And she's just like this, I guess, what's my life now? Yeah. You know, what, what are her dreams? She didn't have any. She got married. She had kids. But her, she was the prom queen. She was the cheerleader. High school were the best days of her life. And now she's got this train building man boy, mm-hmm. you know. And we and we had some plans to go out and do it was Pinocchio or Goofy Golf. The family sides against him. That's right. Golf, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, but right then there's a big power outage, so Roy's got to go out. Gets in his truck. He heads out to deal with the power outage. Okay, wait, wait. Yeah. As as the power is going out, let's look at what's happening here. The power goes out in the house. Then it shows the gas station. The power goes out. Mm-hmm. It shows McDonald's. Power goes out. Then it shows. The, the block where the yeah. house, the power goes out from block to block in the neighborhood where the Neary's live. Then there's the, the, the biggest sort of like exterior shot, which shows 
that whole city, the power going out. Mm. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but above above that shot, above the, the, the last shot that you see of all the power going out, you see a red light in the sky. Yeah. Okay, now, that red light, I always thought it was an airplane. But when I saw it on the big screen again recently, I was like, no, wait a minute. That's one of the UFOs. Mm-hmm. It's the red light UFO. The yeah. red light yeah. right. Right. The one that gets right. And did you, so I remember this as a kid, having a special feeling about that red light UFO because mm. it was more whimsical on some level. I never thought about it until yeah. this year. Yeah. yeah. I totally, for some reason, I connected to it as a kid. Mm-hmm. What I really enjoy about this beginning intro of both of these characters, right? What we're going to find out with Melinda Dillon is that, like you were saying, this, she might have a drinking problem. Plus, how many uh, single moms are there? At this time, at this time in the country. And also, she's an artist. She draws. She has this thing about her that's very interesting. She probably had a, a one-night affair or a relationship with, and the guy left, can't, couldn't handle raising a child, left her. She has this beautiful house. I don't know how she pays for the house, but she's there in the house. Beautiful, lush grass all around her, the trees. Amazing expanse. And all this freedom. Then you have Richard Dreyfus, who was doing, who was like cluttered into this box essentially that he didn't want to be. Also, kind of a, chi- a childlike in the approach of things. Also, somewhat of an artist in a certain way, an artist sensibility in a certain way, but in a but trapped in a different situation. Right. Yet no less desperate. And, and, and that's and, what's interesting when I see these two people. And at no point where she loves her child, he couldn't. He couldn't. It seems like he could get rid of the he kids tomorrow. Care less. Yeah. And at no point watching this this back and forth, going from scene to scene, watching this movie for the first time, yeah. would you ever expect these two characters to be bonded in such a way and share a car together to Absolutely. go to Devil's Tower? Absolutely. Because they were so fundamentally different mm-hmm. as people. Well, crazy things happen when you get mind warped by aliens. <laughs> yeah. um, so speaking of that, he's in his truck. He stops the car. He's like, okay, wait, wait to your own yeah. point. Brilliant. All right. Now, this scene that you're getting at now, Steve, yes, is my favorite scene in the movie. Right. I, I can see it. Okay. Well, this, the, t- the, so tell the, us about the, it. The build up to this scene. So, so Roy, he works for the power company, right? And he's they send him out. So he gets lost, and he's in the middle of nowhere. And the build Remember up to the scene is Remember now. Maps. This this is what I what this is where I'm talking about how Spielberg really came to into his Spielbergness. With Close Encounters. So Roy Neary is stopped. He's looking at a map. The car drives up behind him. The lights come really close. And he's looking at his map. And he just sort of like waves the car to go past him. And the truck pulls the next to him and goes, you're in the middle of the road, jackass. (laughs) And he goes, can you tell me where cornbread is, turkey? (laughs) So then now, now, after that first scene, we see Roy's truck driving across the country road. This time, from a distance. This time, as Roy's truck goes from the left side of the screen to the right side of the screen, at the moment, pay, pay attention to this, fellas. When the truck gets to the right side of the screen as it's driving from left to right, the top left-hand corner of the screen, you see the red light <laughs> in the sky, the same wow. red light. That was above the city that took out all the power. Wow. Now, Roy has stopped <laughs> at a train crossing. Mm-hmm. And here comes another light. This one gets really close. Mm-hmm. 
He waves it along, thinking it's the same old thing. Person's going to go past him to his left, and the lights slowly start to rise. And everyone in the theater started laughing. They know what that thing is. Mm -hmm. Now, he's sitting there with his radio on, and then the radio stops. The mailboxes start to shake. And then he takes out his flashlight. And he's looking at the – he's got the light shined on the mailboxes. The mailboxes are shaking. And then everything in the truck goes out. And then at that moment, the spotlight from the alien ship shines down on Roy's truck. The lighting of that scene, like the way the light shines down on his truck, it's like a, it's you, you could see the light wrap Around, it's not this like instant light where it's like flick, it's on. Yeah, the way the light, it, I don't know how they shot that scene. The light, you see the light envelop his truck. It's a gorgeous scene, mm-hmm. and then everything is going crazy in the truck, and he's terrified. When he, the radio is going on and off, the ashes are coming out of the ashtray, and uh, it's like gravity sort of like loses itself for a little bit mm-hmm. there, and then just like that, it stops. And then you hear some crickets in the background. And Roy Neary is terrified. He slowly peeks out, slowly looking through the windshield, looking up. And he sees the alien ship going across the sky. And it's, it's, just, it's just a beautiful scene because at that point, too, you know, he looks out the window and he, and he looks up and he... And he and the, the, the light from the, the alien ship, it shines down on his face, and he's covering his fa- only half of his face. But that's why only half of his face gets the sunburn. sunburn. Yeah. But then when the light goes off again, and Roy is just sitting there, and he's just kind of like processing what just happened. And then in the distance, you know, a little further down the road, above another street sign, I, don't, I never understood the significance of this, of this moment. But Roy is just looking ahead after he sees the alien ship above and he looks down the street and he sees the spotlight shine down on another street light and mm-hmm. then the, the light goes off like i i never understood what was behind the decision to do that i mean it may be nothing at all it may have been it was just like oh i was looking at other things around the truck maybe that was the moment that sort of like gave him the vision to mm-hmm. you got to go to devil's tower i don't know but and there's no score, no score to intrude on the suspense. It's perfect. It's a perfect scene. And then everything comes back on. And he's like, ah, ah, ah. Right. <laughs> you know, it's great. So, so first of all, just on the spotlight going on is that there's so many things in this movie which are left mysterious. Mm. Like this isn't like a mystery where you get to the end of the movie and you go, everything now makes sense. You don't. Right. Like, you get to the end of the movie and go, wow, there's a lot of things that are still mysterious. We don't know where those planes were doing, or we don't know what that boat was doing, and we don't know why that spotlight hit that spot. Right. Um, one thing, technically, just because it's awesome. So the effect that happens when he's in the truck, when gravity goes awry, as you told so beautifully. So where that comes from is they, they said, what are we going to do? And what Spielberg was inspired by is Fred Astaire dancing on the ceiling. And so the famous Fred Astaire dancing around the room shot where they have a whole room on a gimbal that can 
spin and they have a camera that's locked to that gimbal so that it appears as if he's going and dancing on yeah. the ceiling. Well, that's exactly what they did is they 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 have <laughs> the entire thing flipping upside down with the camera staying locked to him so that, yeah, gravity does go awry because he's hanging from the ceiling at one point in that yeah. shot and then rotating around. Yeah. It's a great, great effect. It's, it's such a great effect. It's yeah. such a great scene because just like that is, for me, there are, there are so many quintessential shots that you look you take one look at this shot and you know it's close encounters. Yeah. I think one of the shots that they used a lot, especially back in the 70s, was the shot of... Uh, of Barry opening the door. Right. Yes. Oh, yeah. Because that's that. there's the innocence of this young kid, mm-hmm. and there's the aliens outside. It's a great shot. But the other one is the shot of Roy Neary's truck at the railroad crossing with the light shining yeah. down yep. on it. Absolutely. You know, it's in the middle of nowhere. He is by himself, and he is having a quintessential close encounter. Yep. And, and no one's going to believe him. No. And then what does he do? He chases it. He takes off. Right. Yeah. He takes off and drives out. I love to that scene. He, he turns on the radio. He's like, okay. And he just like, you know, uh, just past the Harbor Freeway and at least toward Harper Valley. And he just <laughs> takes off. Takes off. But, and then we have the, I guess you could call it a meet cute, but it's not a meet cute of when Roy and uh, Jillian meet for the first time. Yeah, that's right. Well, we follow the little kid down this kind of country road. Yeah. Uh, and he ends up in this place on this kind of mountain and there's, some people in a truck are waiting, and there's a guy who's whistling. And again, the cinematography is just... And this right. is all interior sets. Yeah. Right. Um, and the cinematography is gorgeous. And uh, Mom shows up. Jillian shows up to find her kid. And here comes Richard Dreyfus in the truck. It almost hits the kid. Almost, almost runs the kid over. Yeah. Um, By and, the way, the actor whistling is the guy from Home Alone. The is from Home Alone. He's the old guy... Oh, with Kevin oh, in the church. Right. That's oh, the same actor. Good one. Yes. I saw Bigfoot once. Yes. I saw Bigfoot once. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, so this, like, this is interesting, Steve, because they know they're. This is not oh, yeah. a close encounter, and we're all like, we were initially believing that it's a new thing that this kid is seeing with the choice. We think it's a new thing that Richard Dreyfus is seeing. These people camp out on the side of the road. They don't make a big they deal. Know. They know. Of You're course right. They, of they course were they sitting know. there waiting of course for it. They've been sitting well, there the, the question time. is, were they contacted tonight like the kid in Richard Dreyfus, or were they contacted sometime in the past? No, no. I what he's saying know, is they knew. I think they know exactly when that thing comes. It comes at certain times. It's scheduled to go uh, because it's a reconnaissance ship. It's but, essentially but, a reconnaissance ship, almost like a policeman doing patrol at the same time at night. I think he's right because like the way that the bio – the. Uh, the way they're standing there, like they're sitting there with their arms folded, yeah. they are waiting. Yeah, they know. Oh, they're no not question. like they're doing other things, you right. know. I mean, like the guy sitting there thing, whistling, uh, she'll be coming around the mountain. Right. All right. They know. Yeah. You're right. I never thought about that. Really? Oh, they knew. So this is very I, educational. Well, there's no question to me that they know. Yeah. My, my question, and this is why I go like, I don't think this movie is knowable. It's like, okay. are they Richard Dreyfus's that got affected by the aliens and are having a vision like Devil's Tower, and that's what's telling them to be here at this time, or are the aliens coming regularly to this spot, and that's why they're hanging out there? I would say regularly to this spot, and this is my opinion, obviously, yeah. but regularly to the spot because they don't go to Devil's Tower. Right. They don't go. Right. They have their own purpose to serve in this whole situation, including Homie Whistling Around the Mountain, because he ends up later in that science right, right. institute and table. Right, they all have their part to play in this, but Richard Dreyfus and Melinda Dillon are the and the chi- and his child Barry are the chosen ones. Those are the chosen ones 
for for us as, as our protagonists to follow through this whole journey because a bunch of other people go to Devil's Tower, but those three are the ones we follow. Well, they're they're our main characters for a movie, but then right. Francois Truffaut says something about imagine the hundreds of other people who didn't make it that far. Right, there's the implication oh, yeah, that there possibly. could be thousands of people sure. right, who didn't make the connection to go to Devil's Tower. Yeah, right, right. or couldn't right. for knows? whatever reason. Right, yeah. there could we be don't a whole know. Lot. Um, and and then in come those aliens, in come those uh, spaceships. Oh. This is That's so great. It's, it's such a because like it. That the, the score is just very minimal, and then it stops. And there is Melinda Dillon kneeling down with Barry. Yeah. And here, around, come around the mountain. Those, those, mm-hmm. how, how they shot that scene. It's a, it, the special effects, it, looks it still real. looks like, yeah, it, it looks, looks so fantastic. real. I mean, if that's so a real. model, I don't know how mm-hmm. the hell they did that. But, but very distinct Different looking alien ships come around. One yeah. looks like an ice cream cone. And then the very last one is sort of like a, the running joke of the movie. Every time you see the a- aliens is the little red light. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and then, and then, you know, Dreyfus go, this is nuts. And he, again, he takes off. Takes off and chases and him. It's, yeah. it's so great the way the, he, the, he's chasing the aliens and the cops are chasing. Look at, look at the way they're hugging the road. <laughs> and then the, the way Richard Dreyfus and the cops, they're, they're yeah. chasing the aliens. They go through the toll booth. You Love know, hey, that's booth. Ohio. That's a quarter. <laughs> and, and the way they keep going and the other cops are so transfixed by what they're chasing, they just drive right off the road. Yeah. But then the other cops, the way they screech to a halt and then – Roy Neary and the other cops, they get out, they just look ahead, and the aliens, they just keep going straight, and they all disperse, yeah. go up in the sky, right? So it's 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 beautiful. They just keep going, right. and then they just part ways and and go up in the sky, and then the lightning, you know, and the and the and the clouds and the light from the ships, and then you see the life come back to the city, to the city. and Roy is like, he just found his purpose. That look on his face, he's like out of breath, and it and then it it, it hits him. Yeah. It hits him. I mean, part of it hits him. Enough of it hits him where well, he's it's changed. the beginning of yeah. the end. It is the beginning yeah. of the end for him. Um, so one of the things as a directing instructor that people, you know, is a regular thing you tell film students is to watch films with the sound off. Because you could really see the the storytelling and not be distracted by something, and and this is something I've heard Spielberg say in multiple interviews that this is a big thing for him that he believes. Up until this point of the movie, and we're twenty five to thirty minutes into the mm. film, I would say there is almost no essential dialogue. That this is very, with the exception of the the sun came out at night, it mm. sang to me. You know, Richard Dreyfus. we don't care about Pinocchio or golf or mm-hmm. the train. Mm-hmm. There's nothing with Jillian and the kid. There's not, there's, it's all, it's almost works as a silent film. Mm. This, the, and this is Spielberg's real genius. And it's funny too, thinking about it is to me, the biggest influence, directorial influence that I see in this film is John Ford. Is that, Searchers. Is Searchers. Is that the way the film is shot, the beauty of the storytelling, the beauty of the frame, and how people move into the frame mm. tells us so much about what's going on. It is people looking. It's these landscapes. Right. And you're getting... And, and that's that, this is why the, the idea of fluffy Steven Spielberg is looking at it now is so ridiculous. Is. is that he is a deep, profound, mm-hmm. beautiful artistic filmmaker... Working, you know, I mean, just pure genius going on here in yeah. this film to do Agreed. it that way. Yeah. Agreed. We get back home with Richard Dreyfus. Oh, 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 he is excited. Poor Terry. Poor Terry. Poor Terry. Yeah. Gar. I feel for her through the whole movie. 
yet. As you should. Because I agree with you. I think she's a woman who got Well, no, I, I take that back. There are some moments I do not feel for her. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 When, like, we in, have to have perspective. Seen in the shower, she, she's it's a little cool. insensitive. Yeah. Uh, but, but okay, so so he what, rallies the troops. He wants to drag him out. Right. And... And this then, is a real, but this is a really nice moment. In the neighborhood, are looking at the, how crazy they are. Yeah, you know when they go out, when when uh, Dreyfus takes him to the point where he first saw them, mm-hmm. and she's like, "Roy, what did it look like?" It was like an ice cream cone. What flavor? Orange. It was orange, and it wasn't like an ice cream cone. It was, it was more like a shell. You know, it was like this, like a taco. Was it like a? Was it like one of those Sara Lee um, moon-shaped cookies? Those those crescent cookies. She's humoring him. Yep. She's yeah. going oh, along yeah, with course. it. Don't you think I'm taking this really well? I remember when we used to come to places like this just to look at each other. And he's looking up, and and she's kissing him, and this really gets me. This this moment, and maybe because of the score, it's the way it's sort of like slides back in you know she starts kissing him his, his cheek his neck and he's looking up and he's oblivious and then he realizes what she's doing and yeah. he looks back at her and he goes oh, he smiles like it's the only point in the film that he like loves her yeah, yeah. like and he starts kissing her and that lasts for about 10 seconds yeah and then in the middle of the kiss, he's looking back, back up at the sky. <laughs> yeah. he, he, she had him for seconds. Yeah, yeah. But it was a beautiful moment. Yeah. It's, but it's that's hard. why I feel sympathy for her because he, like like uh, Scott said, like she probably married him out of high school, had the kids. This is what you're supposed to do at that time, right? This is still, we're right at the cusp of the women's liberation movement, marching, ERA, burning, bro- like all this stuff is right at this point. And she's still caught in the traditional sense of being the wife and the mother and having the kids. What about my dreams? What about what I want? Where is my place in this? And there, the 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 kind of the hidden subplot of this whole movie is her journey too in dealing with a guy who is this distracted from their marriage, who finds that there's more worth in pursuing this than there is in working on this. Yeah. And that's really powerful. And although yeah. he is a hero in a sense in the movie, he does leave a trail of bodies no, we, on the way to this We're going to have to get into that because, yeah. you know, I mean, that's part of why Steven Spielberg says he wouldn't make this movie now. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You but know? ask yourself, why does he bring them with him Well, this, okay, if so, he thinks so oh, little that, that of would not, the, the, he, he, he was... you have a profound experience... I, I could see where... I could see where Spielberg, at that time of his life, yeah. before he knew what it meant to have a family, right. to be really selfless and generous and and this, right, this think of other people before you think of yourself. Well, the, the mountain is the, him as a film director. Nothing else matters. Right. He may have had other relationships, like the Amy Irving situation that he was dating at, at the, and then before Kate Capshaw came in and that whole thing happened, but... He, there may have been other women in his life who were like, "What about? Look at me! Look at me!" And he's like, "No, they film, weren't the love film, of his life. Film, right?" It, and I, I don't want to frame this a slightly different way too. And I don't know that for sure, but I'm just saying. No, no, I, I'm not disagreeing mm-hmm. at all. But um, is that part of what we do as artists is to take circumstances and reimagine them sure. and ask what if? And to me, I go back to that moment where Steven Spielberg's dad woke him up in the middle of the night. Mm. And he takes him out to look at the meteor shower. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's this moment. Yeah. Because you reimagine, you go, 
what if there was something more? Right. What if my dad had seen something? Mm -hmm. What if there was this wonder and oh, magic and point. aliens? Yeah. And this is that moment reimagined. Yeah. You know. So yes, I think it is about the family and it is about Terry Gar's character and all that mm. thing, all that is there. But it's also about this magical reimagination of this own experience connecting with his father. Great point. You know. So. And then we go to the Gobi Desert in Mongolia. Mm -hmm. Like, what are we doing there? Who are these people? How do you go from Indiana <laughs> to? Yeah. But this to is what I forgot the, about the film: is the scope of it. It's big. It's the scope is international, big, global scope of it. scale. Mm -hmm. It is a global scale because, like, you're at the Gobi Desert and like you're in India. Um, but that's how, and, and that goes back to your point where how many people around the yeah, world have been affected by this? Were given this vision but didn't make the connection we're just looking yeah. at the people in the usa yeah but this is clearly something that was affecting people around the world and this for, is where for decades yeah, yeah. For, for decades, decades for right. decades right so so what the hell is this ship doing in the middle of the desert how the hell should it get there the cut epoxy yeah. beats the shit out of me yeah and, and who do we get to see again our old friends bob balaban and yeah. francois truffaut uh, and, and it's like, oh, that's them again. Mm -hmm. You know, so we have these personal stories where we're kind of being involved in characters. And then we touch in on this global thing that mm -hmm. we don't quite understand. Um, we're back home uh, uh, with Richard Dreyfus. There's an article about the UFO in the paper. I love they they, they kind of try to surprise him. He scares him with the toothpaste. Mm -hmm. This is all good. Good family fun. Until um, he finds out that he lost his job. Well, but and before that, before that, while he's shaving, he's got the shaving cream. Yes, we oh, first time yep. we are yeah. seeing the content, the the effect of his vision. Mm -hmm. This is the first time where he is looking at the shape of something, going, "This means something." Mm -hmm. And the when he puts the shaving cream on his hand, like the the framing of the scene, and then the sort of the way the score is like building mm -hmm. beneath yeah. the surface and he starts moving around his hand to shape the shaving cream mm -hmm. and he shows it to terry Carr. what does this mean to you <laughs> like what are you yeah it's like, oh, whatever she's not she has no yeah clue well, what, what of course because if you someone did that you would like shaving cream like what yeah, are you talking about totally totally i mean how you deal with your spouse who is going completely apeshit crazy mm -hmm. it's, it's a tough one because mm -hmm. he is going crazy mm -hmm. and yes we do find out that he's lost his job and terry garris she's worried about the family image mm -hmm. ronnie i saw something last night that i can't explain i saw something last night i can't explain i'm going out there again tonight you know no you're not sam no you're not sam That's what she's really worried about. To the neighbors. To the neighbors. Yeah, right. which I think is, and I think what you said about Spielberg, like he wouldn't, he would shoot it differently today. Yeah. I think that's probably something too, because she's not wrong to no, feel this not way. At all. And I think the film sometimes does her an injustice by making her seem like a nag or a status person or a person who's about appearances. But this is such a drastic change in someone's life. How would you really deal with it? Oh, yeah. No, we no. utopian think we know how we would deal with it. But in reality, it's a lot to process and take at, 
in it's one It's happening time. really fast. Yes, exactly. I mean, we don't know it's exactly how much time this is, but we assume this is a matter of days. Yeah. I mean, the, the, this is the article in the newspaper, and I don't think we spend a lot of time mm. before we get to where we're going. Yeah. Of course, right now where we're going is to India. Okay, this is a great scene. <laughs> this is a great scene because Take a scut. The, the, the comparison to the, the scene in the desert, which was very spare, very sparse. Yeah. You know, there's only like a couple of people in the Mongolian desert, but now you're in India where it is very crowded, very congested, very mm-hmm. populated, and it's very, there's a lot of chaos going on when we once again see our old friends, mm-hmm. Francois Truffaut and Bob Alban, with their entourage mm-hmm. of, you know, who are these people? What are they doing? Mm-hmm. What are they doing? And you hear everyone in India <laughs> chanting, <laughs> chanting those five months. <laughs> It's like all those people chanting. I mean, it's it's chilling the way the camera like pans across and all the people. The hundreds, hundreds yeah. of people are lined up, chanting, chanting those five notes, the uh, uh, Kodai, you know, uh, musical notes. Mm, right. And then uh, when they go to the top of the hill, and they're, they're they ask the interpreter, yeah, where, where did these, yeah. where did these sounds come from? And then. And then wait, wait, wait! Oh my God, chills! I'm getting the chills right yeah. now. Yeah. The, the the interpreter says, "Hiyo, hiyo!" He stops everybody chanting, and he says, "These sounds, where did they come from?" And all the fingers point up. And yeah. the Sound effect. Yeah. It's like this, like like everyone's going up, and yeah. it's like the the way the fingers all like like you're looking at the interpreter on the hill, and all the interpreter on the hill, and then in the same frame, all the fingers point mm-hmm. up. They are coming from up, mm-hmm. and then you cut to this much more civilized depiction of in, in a huge stadium, just a handful of people going like, "Okay, uh, this is what we have so far. Mm-hmm. We have these these sounds. We have the signal." And and it, it took a long time, many viewings for me to realize that in that scene, when Truffaut, when Lacombe is demonstrating. The hand signals yeah. to go along with the music. Yeah. Did you did you notice that off to one side, from their backs, you see the astronauts? No, I didn't. Okay. No. Go back and watch it again. Just just you don't have to watch the whole thing. No. Just watch the scene. Go forward to that scene in the stadium or in the 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 like looks like a uh, auditorium. Yeah, conference. And yeah. and where they are going through the different hand signals mm-hmm. and Lacombe is saying. We think this means something. We think this is important. At that moment, you see a group of about a yes. dozen, right? Like, yes, yes, and they had their backs to you, and you, what you, right. re, what you realize later, many, many viewings yeah. later, in fact, yeah. is that they have already chosen right the astronauts right. that they mm. want to go yes. up to the spaceship. Yeah. It's that's so fascinating because there's this other movie that we're not really getting to see, which mm-hmm. is the character who is Francois Truffaut, right? And what has he been doing? And what has been this pro? What led him to India, to Mongolia, to Mexico? What is this pro? Why did he discover these notes and these hand signals and combine them? It's like what? And we don't get to know. We mm-hmm. don't. There, there's so much. You know, but this is very much the tip of the iceberg, mm-hmm. and there's clearly massive, massive stories underneath. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing we should talk about these five notes, because in general, when John Williams works, he doesn't want to read the script, he doesn't want to see the dailies, 
He do, he doesn't want he wants to see a good rough cut before he even thinks about composing music. Yeah. And in this case, he couldn't do that because they had to have these. Not only did they have to have these five notes, but they had to have the musical conversation that already had to be worked out. And they and Spielberg was very insistent that it couldn't be six notes, it couldn't be seven, it couldn't be eight because he didn't want it to be a melody. He wanted it to be a greeting. Mm-hmm. He wanted it to be a doorbell. And so they, <laughs> Williams put together like 500 permutations of five notes, mm-hmm. and they listened to them for days. <laughs> and finally, they, there was one they had circled, and they brought in a whole bunch of new notes, and they thought, let's go back and listen to that circled one, and then more and more. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to that circled one. And finally, after doing a lot, they're like, I that's guess that's it. That's what they came back to. I right? guess that's mm-hmm. the one. That, yeah. That's amazing. And by the way, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that instead of scoring the film from a rough cut that that Williams actually composed and conducted the score and Spielberg edited the movie to match the oh, score. Oh, I didn't hear that. Yes, I oh, believe that's, that's the case wow. that Spielberg edited the film to match John Williams' my score. My guess, Mike, and I don't know anything, but my guess is that that is true of the last 25 minutes. Mm. That he he cuz Spielberg described that last 25 minutes as John Williams's opera. Mm. That there was like an opera, the whole story musically beginning to end. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if it's true for that. Whether I, I have no idea, but mm-hmm. that's my gut. Um, so so now we'll go back to the moment, the area where we first saw the uh, spaceships. Yep. Or that Richard Dreyfuss exactly and right. the villain first mm-hmm. saw the spaceships. Mm-hmm. But now there's a whole there's a whole t- there's a ton of people. It's right. Like, yep. It's like they're waiting for it. Now were these people? Some of them, as we see later on, because they actually did make it to Devil's mm-hmm. Tower, did all these people have a vision, or were they just there because of word of mouth? Who knows? I think it's word of mouth. And, I think it's both. Yeah, and I think the uh, um, this is something that we that we know from back then. I mean, having grown up around this time, there were people who believed in UFOs. There were people that sure. had gatherings to think that to see to try and see them. Yeah, you know, that was the way it was done. It was almost like a a communal event for these people who are into UFOs. You know, I call it the first Comic Cons. These were the first Comic Cons. They are just <laughs> obsessed. They, they they hope their stars show up and they go all at the same time to try. And they had signs. They even had signs yeah. for this. So there was yeah, all kinds stop of stuff. and be friendly. Yeah, stop and be friendly. Exactly. <laughs> have signs. So that tells me everything. Watch. I love they used it in Independence Day this, too. This I is an interesting. That. Th- yeah. Yeah. yeah well, wait. Wait. In Independence blasted. Day, stop shooting guns at the yeah. edge. <laughs> <It's> LA. <laughs> Uh, so, so this you know the scene now, uh, it, it's a good fake out because you know you see the lights. Uh, everyone yeah. says, "Okay, yeah. they're coming, they're coming," yeah. and the lights are approaching, and they they look like the UFOs. The right. way the light, the way that Douglas Trumbull, who was the VFX guy, right. uh, Oscar nominated for this film, and he worked on Kubrick with 2001. He also yeah. did the VFX on Blade Runner and Star Trek: The Motion Picture. But the way the like you know a Douglas Trumbull visual effects shot. Like the when you see a light, there's like a a, a halo right. around the light, and it's it's yeah. so unmistakably Douglas Trumbull's work. So as the 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 ships are approaching the mountain, and you see the the halo around the lights, and then you realize it's they're not spaceships; they're yeah. helicopters, and they're trying to get everybody to shoo away. Mm. And this is interesting. I don't so. The helicopters are hovering above the crowd. Everybody's dispersing, and it's chaos, and everybody's you know running off in different directions. Now, Dreyfus is standing there. He's looking up at a, uh, uh, I, I think it's a, a, it's a street sign, and it's swinging back and forth mm. in the wind. Mm-hmm. 
Now, is he second-guessing what happened at the railroad crossing? Because, That's a great question. Yeah. Because he's great looking question. up. He's looking up at the street sign yeah. that's swinging back and forth because of the wind from the helicopter. Mm-hmm. In the same way that the the uh, uh, the railroad crossing yeah. was just swinging back and Good forth point. without any help at all, except from an alien. Yeah. So I I often wondered if at that moment when he sees the the sign go back and forth, if he was like, maybe it was a helicopter, maybe. It wasn't a spaceship. That's yeah. a really good point. I hadn't yeah. thought about it, but totally could be. Sure. Um, we go to, uh, we're sending out those five notes off to a satellite dish, and they're getting a signal back. Yeah, mm-hmm. two seconds. But but yeah. what does it mean? What are the, it's like we're getting numbers. What do the numbers mean? It's a good thing Bob Balaban is a cartographer. <laughs> he knows the answer. A little yeah. contrived moment, but we'll take it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, before I spoke, before I was speaking French, I read maps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I do love that they go, well, we need to, it's, it's coordinates. Yeah. We need to go, does anyone have a map? And of course, they find this giant earth globe, the globe. that they have oh, to run. That's a, that's a billion dollar, that's a hundred thousand dollar globe. What are you I doing? Love that. And, and love that's that. Spielberg's sensibilities, right? And that's no what question. makes him such a gifted filmmaker. There's been all this kind of seriousness up until this moment and then he rolls these incredibly intelligent smart men Grab a globe and roll it down the hallway. Yeah. It's just brilliant. That's great. It's just That's brilliant. So great. Yeah, the, so levity, smart. The, yeah. the levity in that scene is great. Yeah. And now we're at we're at I would say the scariest scene in the movie. Oh. Oh, with Barry. With Barry. Yeah. Now, this scene, by any measure, in any film, is terrifying. Yeah. The abduction of Barry. Yeah. We're back at this house in the middle of nowhere. Right. We are, uh, uh, you know, Melinda Dillon is taking out the trash. And the clouds are rolling in. They don't look right to Melinda Dillon. These cloud effects are amazing. I mean, gorgeous. so scary. Cloud effects, which were provided by putting, mixing salt water and fresh water and putting ink in in a, a you know a, a jar you know to get the effect of the the, the slow moving wow. cloud wow. coming across the sky. So cool. Now, not only do you have the clouds rolling in, which are alarming to Melinda Dillon, but you also start to see the lights in the sky. Yeah. And that's when you see the lights shining down on Melinda Dillon, and she starts to slowly walk in the house. Yeah. And then you see in the distance the lights come down. And that's when Barry's like, you know, he's having a ball with all of this. Mm. Melinda Dillon is terrified. They, they are having such polarized reactions yeah. to such a, a unique experience. Yeah. And you don't see the ships. You don't see the aliens. You see lights. You just see lights. And she's trying to houseproof the place, close all the windows, lock all the doors, lock all the windows. But they are trying to find their way in. It is a scene out of a completely different movie. Yes. It is a different movie. It's a freaking horror film. It's a film. horror film. Yeah, absolutely. It is. You, they don't realize that they are terrorizing her. They don't well, know any better. Or hold do on. they? We don't know what they know. Right. That's a good point. Like, this is one of the things about the movie is that we have... Spielberg is trying to tell us a certain thing about the aliens, which I think is hopeful and warm. Yeah. 
but we don't actually know mm-hmm. who these guys are. The moment that the kid opens the door, oh the red door. That's yeah. one of the greatest cinematic it's moments just a ever. Great, you could every Frame. time you yeah. see a montage of great moments in cinema history. Yeah, yeah. that's one of them. Yeah. And, and Spielberg says, and I probably agree that this is the most important shot in the film. Mm-hmm. Is that this is the moment? I think he described it as it's the child opening the door to curiosity and hope. <laughs> you know, wow. interesting. Wow. Um, I love that. And here's the thing: I was thinking about this, is that with Spielberg, the unknown is such an important theme throughout so many of his films mm-hmm. is that, and the unknown is either terrifying or amazing. Yeah. Is that there's the unknown of the driver in duel and the unknown of the shark. And there's the unknown of the aliens in, in close encounters mm-hmm. and the unknown of the alien in ET. Well, and, I think it's the unknown of the human, the adult humans in ET. Oh, sure. Because the alien is known. The kids are known and the mother is known, but everyone else is shot from the waist down. Yeah. So That's they're the unknowns too. in E.T. Well, you know what? It's both because there's the E.T. before we know him. Right. In, right, in right, the shed. Course, sure. That's that's the unknown that turns out to be good. Right. And then, yeah, I mean, this, this is a thing he plays with a lot. Mm-hmm. And the, this combination of fear and hope right. is definitely something that's really strong in Close Encounters. For me, it's the turning of the screws in the vent. Like, Dude, that's, that's so oh, scary. Screws, that's yeah. scary as shit. That's a pickup shoot, by the way. They did that later. Yeah, they, they <laughs> showed that in the documentary before yeah. the film. They showed how they were doing it and it how they picked it up. It is scary as hell. Yeah, it is but very then, scary. Uh, just as scary as Barry goes through the pet door, yeah. the front door, oh. and the aliens are grabbing oh. him on one side, and, and Melinda Dillon's grabbing him, and she is... She is hysterical. Yes. She is absolutely hysterical. Her her performance in that scene alone is why she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Oh, I didn't realize she got nominated. She got nominated for that. And you know who else should have been nominated? Carrie Guffey. Barry. If that movie was today, people would be talking about how he's going to be like the youngest Oscar nominee and all that shit. um, And and before that, so the... Going through that kitchen when the kitchen goes apeshit yeah. crazy is also terrifying, and that's one take. And they didn't know, like they you can't rehearse it, right? So that's just and so she was genuinely freaked out and screaming <laughs> during that sequence. Well, well, Melinda radiates that naturally on screen. Yeah. She has that. I had such a crush on her growing up. That that's my kind. Like that's my kind of what I find attractive in certain actresses. Like sure, it's the same thing with Melora Walters. I have a thing for Melora Walters as well. There's something about the Yeah, they are similar. Yeah. That's they which totally is why are. I enjoyed them in Magnolia. Like in Magnolia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're They're right. So similar. And that's I that, to me they have that same kind of vibe where they radiate that kind of broken vulnerability fragility, that you want to take yeah. care. Fragility, very good points. The yeah, yeah. fragility that you want to take care of and uh and nurture. And she is so broke because she's she's a free spirit. Her fighting for that for Barry, her yeah, that's oh, yeah. the last connection she has to something human. Her paintings, her drawings, her things. That's how she's doing her life. But the child is what gives her some kind of purpose, and so her her having the, it yanked the, away from is, her. It's horrible. Yeah, it is not so horrible for Barry because the person on the other end of that doggy door is his actual mother, and he giggles. Yeah, his actual mother oh, is, is right? pulling him through the doggy door. Oh, yeah. is that right? Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. great. No wonder he, 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 yeah, he's he, fine got, with he it. got pulled yeah. through. But like, as soon as he's pulled through the door, she opens the door, and they're already gone. Yeah, they're way gone. And they she's are running gone. She's through. running down, yeah. and the cat, the, the lights 
fade and the clouds retreat very, very quickly. Like as soon as he gets pulled through the door, she right. whips it open. They're gone. Barry is gone. We'll, we'll never see 70 Spielberg again. 70 Spielberg is the right mix of being unafraid to be dark or horror in certain moments because the overall end goal is something more positive and hopeful. It does not bleed into almost anything he does until Schindler's List. And then after that, not I again. agree with that. And I it's, agree. May, and, may, I mean, yeah. maybe, you know, maybe Private Ryan, but... Not for me. Not for me. Except for that opening 20 minutes. Sure, 25 minutes, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think... I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that he's made some good movies in the last, you know, 15 years. You know, Minority Report, mm. I liked a lot. Sure, I think AI right. is an underrated movie. I do like AI a lot. I love the uh, first act of AI. I think it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I, I think yeah, the, the last like act, and the third people kind of, you know, it gets a little too much. You have, you have to go with it, and I, I get the criticism of that last, mm-hmm. of the last twenty minutes of that movie. But I agree with you. I think when I think of Spielberg at his very, very finest, it for you it's it's Schindler's List. I, I kind of stretch it to Private Ryan, but I do yeah. see why Schindler's List is sort of like that's it. Yeah, it's almost like Tom Hanks. Remember when Tom Hanks could do amazing comedies in the eighties. We don't get that Tom Hanks anymore. No, and it's heartbreaking because he is a fantastic fucking he comedian. He is so funny. He's so great in those 80 movies and we'll never, ever but see that again. that's the money pit. He's so yeah. good in the money pit. <laughs> but, but that's the nature of, I mean, of Even artistry. Even with one red shoe, he's fucking the, the number of people, <laughs> The number of people that sustain over yeah. decades. Yeah. I mean, how many people do it? I know. You're right. You know? Um, uh, now there's this press conference. Um, oh yeah, but, yeah, and and where we have the people who experience the uh, these events, and uh, they don't get a lot of respect. It's, no, they're not respected in this situation. What a shock! The government yeah. doesn't because hiding shit. It doesn't believe this. And innocence. whistling guy says he, that he saw Bigfoot too is not helping us out. At well, all. and also this is just as very 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 close to uh, Watergate. Yes, you know, at the end of uh, the Vietnam War. You know, right. the government was point. not trusted by this yeah. point, and but they are still obviously in power, and they are they are not treating. The people, especially the people in the room, with respect. Yeah. And to Jarvis's credit, he when as soon as the guy says Bigfoot, he knows he's cooked. he knows yeah he yeah, knows he's yeah cooked. he smiles yeah, yeah he done. knows that he's messing around yeah. and yeah. you know he like when he says I saw Bigfoot when he sits down he just kind of like smiles like, yeah yeah fuck it I didn't really see Bigfoot <laughs> <laughs> and now we have some uh, orange government guys some astronauts they're loading mm-hmm. up in a plane and this is where we first hear some stuff of. How are we going to clear those people out of there? Right. We don't know exactly what they're talking about, but what they end up saying is, what I need is something so scary it'll clear 300 square miles of every living, living Christian, Christian soul. <laughs> that word Christian that pops out. Looking? So I'm still sitting at Devil's Tower, by the way, because they apparently <laughs> Cause didn't Jewish, clear the Jews right. out. <laughs> We're still stuck there. But, you know, you're, you're sitting, they're sitting there looking at the mapping, and this is the first time you're looking at a detailed map down to the square yard, yeah, as he wanted yeah. And you see that the actual coordinates that they talked about in the previous scene is it, it goes right to Devil's Tower. And they actually have it down to the spot on Devil's Tower where they're going to build the encampment. Yeah. So, yes, they oh, have to cool. clear the area. And this is a this is a a, 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 a great idea. A, you know, another well-staged plan to clear the area, mm-hmm. except for those obsessed Gifted people who were given this vision, right. who are not going to. Some of them are not going to let the, anything stand in their way, and That's they don't. Right. Yeah. How do you fellows feel about mashed potatoes? 
<laughs> Every single time I eat mashed potatoes, do you really? I think of Close Encounters. Every single time. And I know I'm with a kindred spirit when I'm eating mashed potatoes and someone else will say to me, I always think of Close Encounters when I see mashed potatoes. This scene's amazing. I, it's so well constructed. Mm-hmm. All the performances are so good. It's so chaotic. And the reaction shots and watching Dreyfus's slow processing on the mashed potatoes mm-hmm. is... And, and let's give... We got to give Spielberg some real credit on just the fact that this whole idea is crazy yeah. that he came up with mm-hmm. of people have this thing inserted in their brain and it's forcing them to envision this shape mm-hmm. and they are compelled to do so. That is a fascinating movie-making idea. Mm-hmm. Now, now, when we saw the, the, the previous scenes where where either Richard Dreyfuss or Melinda Dillon were transfixed by the idea of a shape, you would hear that sort of like shaky underscore from John Williams to sort of accentuate mm. the moment a little bit. Right. But when we're sitting at this table, Richard Dreyfuss, he's so broken. He's yeah, so defeated. Awful. He's sitting there. He is so he's filling it filled with such deep despair mm-hmm. and hopelessness. He has lost his job. He is losing his family. Losing he thinks losing his mind. Yeah. I think he is losing his mind. And mm-hmm. but this time when he is shaping the mashed potatoes, he is you don't hear the music. Right. Because maybe he's starting to think, you know, uh I I am a little gone i i like like you know he's looking around and everyone else is looking at him like you're you're crazy Mm. you're losing your fucking mind and it it's it's a tragic scene almost Mm -hmm. because of of the way everyone's like looking at him Mm -hmm. like they're ashamed of him they 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 don't believe in him anymore Mm -hmm. not at all well there's this moment i love where he first he kind of tries to joke out of it well i guess you've noticed something it's a little strange with dad. And then, and I, this line really gets me. It's okay, though. I'm still dad. It's okay, I'm still dad. That I don't know, maybe because I'm a father now, mm-hmm. that it just really affects me. And then he's trying to explain. I can't describe it. What I'm feeling. What I'm thinking. This means something. This is important. That's the that to me are the lines of the movie. This means something. It's important. It is what drives him all the way to the end. Yeah, you know, but they still a, don't believe. Right, and there's no, and what I think about as horror as um, as horror like as that scene is when Barry is taken. This is a different kind of horror. Oh, where you lose. And all of us might have experienced this at some point in our lives. I think every male son has that moment where they look at their father and they see the holes in their father who they once idolized. Yeah. And they see the humanity of the of the father and it is at first initially very difficult to accept that your father has flaws. Yeah, yeah, he's not perfect. He's well, not perfect. Yeah, and you absolutely. see that in that in the older kid and that'll come out later in the shower scene, yeah. but you see that in the older kid the way he's almost like almost crying as he's looking at Richard because he can't figure this like why is my dad being like this? Well, in the second layer to that is Dreyfus sees his yes, son it, see him that that's, way. That's that's the horror that I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. Is that he knows that I'm mm-hmm. falling apart in front of my son who I'm supposed to stay strong for. Right. And then, you know, he's works 
looks on the mountain a little bit on the train set, and then yeah. he runs out into the yard and calls out to the skies. What is it? Yeah. What is it? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. He's like he's it's it's overwhelming. Like it was it started off fun and cute and playful, yeah. mm-hmm. but now now we are seeing the the. the we're going to see one more deeper level of despair in his life yeah. before he really finds his purpose. Exasperated Dreyfus is my favorite Dreyfus. Oh, yeah. It really is. He's great. Same thing in Jaws. Yeah. When he's like doing all the stuff that he's, when he's like all freaking out about everything. He's just so great when he's like yeah. in such uh, madness. Well, and now it's the middle of the night mm-hmm. and Terry hears strange noises from the bathroom. <sighs> Man. And she tries to open the door and she's calling out to him. She yeah. can hear him. And then she finally gets a letter opener or something, and she manages yeah. to get the door open. And there is Richard Dreyfus in the bath, in the Put shower. Put his clothes on. Put his clothes on. Fully closed. I don't think I know what's happening to me. And his performance in the scene is, I mean, this is an Oscar-worthy scene, well, I think. Well, this is an accomplished stage actor. Yeah. Performing a scene with incredible levels of complexity and despair and frustration and an inability to understand what is happening and this is this calls for an incredible actor to bring that kind of stuff yeah. to life and he does he says i don't know what's happening to me because and, and she doesn't know what to do with him she and he said he's pleading with her uh, it's yeah. a tragic scene ronnie yes i'm really scared i want you to help me oh, oh, all this bullshit it's turning his house upside down ronnie, just... i just hate you that's why ronnie, ronnie, no ronnie, ronnie. Just hold me. No. Just put your arms around me. It'll really help me. It'll really help me. Please. Listen, listen, listen! Don't you see what's happening? None of our friends call us anymore. You're out of work. You don't Such care. A small You're ripping us! You're ripping me! Ronnie, just hold on. Ronnie, I'm really scared. I want you to help me. Right. Just hold me. Just put your arms he around me. He chases her around the room. Like yeah. He, well, yeah. And his son is yelling, cry baby, oh, you cry man. baby. Yeah. And, and and what is Terry Gars, what does Ronnie do at this moment? She rejects him. Yep. She, yeah, she locks herself in the bed. She locks herself in the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it is most vulnerable. And this is where, like we talked about, mm-hmm. having sympathy for. I totally have sympathy for her. Yep. But not in this scene. Really? Has there ever been a scene? Wow. I do. When, you're, when your oh, yeah, spouse yeah, says, I need you, I'm scared, you hold me, no. you hold them. I, yeah, mm-hmm. She's like, you're wrecking us. She's like, and it goes back to what you were saying. That's what, she was concerned about yes. the way it looks. Now, I'm, I'm thinking about it right now. I, I see your point. I absolutely, absolutely understand your point of view. That's for better or for worse, uh, for, man. For, <laughs> I mean, this is it. Like, your <laughs> spouse is on the ground crying, playing, please hold me. Right. You fucking hold them. Well, you might deal with other stuff later. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I take this one real seriously. No, listen, you know, you're yes, right. you do. I agree with you. Well, I agree with you. Okay. I see both your points of views, but I also think they married the wrong people. And I think that's sure. why, in the end, when he ends up with Melora, or possibly ends up with—I'm sorry, not Melora, but uh, Melinda Dillon—the uh, they're the right people for each other. And they, Terry Gar is not a, the reason I don't feel I'm not mad at her is because she's not equipped to handle this. She does not have the emotional vocabulary, the emotional knowledge to I understand I, what's true is going through. So I, I, she locks I herself see, away as a defense mechanism. I see not, both your points because yeah. I, I mean, you know, the, the guy is at the lowest of low. He has hit rock bottom. Sure, sure, sure. And she's he's being rejected by his own wife. But think about but how, at the same time to go along with what you said. Yeah. You know what? She wasn't the right one. They were not they they their marriage was was dissolving anyway. Mm-hmm. They were falling apart anyway. The, the, you know, at, a, at life comes down to a few moments. This was the moment he needed her the most and she was not there. And 
I'm trying to think of another Spielberg movie. Has there ever been a Spielberg movie with a scene that topped the intensity of that scene in terms of a family breakdown? Like in terms of a family breakdown? Like in terms of like the way the family is absolutely falling apart. It's a devastating scene mm. to see the kids you cry baby, you cry yeah. baby, and them and then Terry Gar is crying, you know, you're wrecking us, you're wrecking yeah. us, and she she rejects him and he's so desperate and full of such deep hopeless despair mm-hmm. has there ever been a, a, another scene in a spielberg movie that showed a family falling apart so devastatingly so as that scene in close encounters one. yeah i can't think of one i can think of equally emotional scenes you know yeah. like but desperate scenes, but not a family not yeah. i can't think they, of one and, and listen broken families have been a staple in Spielberg for his entire course, direction, sure, sure, sure. which is because ironic. He, he comes from a broken home, right, right. and that was something that that he always related to, and mm-hmm. that was always a personal touch he put into his movies. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I've I, I cannot recall another moment in a Spielberg film where you saw a family f- like not having already fallen apart, right. but a family falling apart in front of your eyes so drastically mm-hmm. and tragically. Yeah, and. Uh, I would be inclined to to agree with you, Steve, if this was an isolated incident. But for weeks, he's been eroding whatever confidence she had left in the marriage with his behavior, with his inability. And we have the gift as people watching the film to understand why he's falling apart. She doesn't. We see him without her in his dogged pursuit to figure out what's happening she's done the wifely duties by standing by his side through all this stuff going out there into that to to, to see the lights again going to this conference or going to this table to be met with the government she's done everything she can possibly do to the extent of her limits and her patience to understand this man this finally breaks her and i don't feel negative towards her because she is only able to deal with so much and she's hit her breaking point and she takes the kids which are her priority which should be the priority she takes her kids and brings them to someplace safe because he is unstable he is unstable well there's two things we always have to separate out which is 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 her decisions totally motivatable and within her character 100 percent, absolutely i totally agree that she is acting in the right way for that character right and then you you know for me you know sometimes i step back and go is that right? And mm-hmm. I go, and I go, no. Okay, that is not. Yeah, but that's fair. It's right for the movie. Right. It is right for her character. Right. Um, he, as you say, he wakes up the next day. We hear some Looney Tunes music. He's still. <laughs> By the way, he's watching. He's why as he's coming to because right. he falls asleep at the dining room table. Oh yeah, which is where the uh, where the the model is. Uh, you know, of yeah. this big shape. We don't know what it is yet. Uh, and by the way, hanging above the model, if you look closely, you could see a model of the Starship Enterprise That's right. yes. and a model oh. of the Klingon ship yeah, from the AMT, ship. Oh, painted in silver. So <laughs> as Roy is coming to, as Richard Reifus is coming to, and his daughter is watching Looney Tunes cartoons, yeah. and she goes, uh, you're not going to yell at me, are you? And you just see him from the back of his head. He shakes his head. He's like, no, I'm not going to mm-hmm. yell at you. So, so then he's like just coming out of... Well, uh, what was a horrible night for a fight and he's rational he's gained his composure he starts taking down all the newspaper clippings mm-hmm. and he's like wow that was a bad night what drove us to this point we almost like lost each other for good last night and he's this is the last moment where he's really going to 
be a father. Mm-hmm. He's taking down the newspaper clippings. Yep. He's throwing everything away. Yeah. He's cleaning up the desk. He says, Ronnie, I'm okay. Everything is under control. And he's going to just take this like big slob thing across, uh, you know, and he's going to just rip it off and throw it away. And he only rips off the top of the, 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 the mountain. Yeah. And he finally sees what he was supposed to have seen all along. And just, just. All, he was almost there. He was almost there. He was there. almost there. So and then he reaches it. the tipping point yeah. that swings him way back yep. the other way. Yep. And then as he's, it, it finally hits him. This is the shape mm-hmm. that I was supposed to be seeing mm-hmm. all along. He still doesn't know it's Devil's Tower, by the way. Nope. Yeah. But he knows what it is. And at that moment, the Looney Tunes cartoon in the background, you hear a character go, watch the skies. <laughs> oh, I didn't notice that before. Yes. Wow. At that That's moment, awesome. when you see Dreyfus with, his, with the look of uh, uh, that aha moment, that light has gone off in his head, he gets it. You hear, watch the skies. Yeah coming from the cartoon in the background. And then, if you thought that Terry Gar wasn't with him before, this is the this end is of the, the road. road. This is full crazy. <laughs> this is full crazy. Yeah. This is the end Outside, of the road. Outside, pulling up plants, yeah. throwing them in through the window. He got it. I, I got it. What are you doing? I, I figured it out. That's all. We did just listen. No. Uh, Ronnie, look. You ever look at something when it's crazy, and then you look at it in another way, and it's not crazy at all? No, I haven't, no. Come on, Ronnie, just listen. I don't know what if you're If you just doing. close your eyes for five minutes, just close your eyes and hold your breath. No. And it'll be really pretty. That's what's so amazing about him in this sequence. He is so calm. rational calm. and calm. Yeah. To him, this all makes sense now. It's yeah, such it a great. It all makes sense. All makes I don't makes know if sense. that's a great Dreyfus acting choice or a great Spielberg direction he gave him, but it is brilliant. Yeah, this is where you're going to be calm. Yes, and everything is okay. Right. Like, like I get it. I, I he says I, I figured it it's out. So yeah. I figured out. Yeah. I don't do this thing. I got to do. You know, like you know, he's like going on. He's still not making sense, but he's making sense yeah. to himself. He gets it. You know, and then it's like kids are helping him throw like the bricks in. Yeah, the they're, having, like, they're enjoying you know, it. Yeah. It was yeah. grabbing, grabbing the uh, chicken wire or the fence from that poor lady's uh, neighbors. Neighbors. And by the way, chicken. she was concerned about appearances. Yeah. yeah, she was concerned about the way that they looked. You're wrecking us. You're wrecking us. Yeah. Our neighbor friends don't call us anymore. You lost your job. Now he's taking it outside. Yeah. He's going, he's grabbing the fencing from where the ducks are, and then all the neighbors are coming out of their homes or they're playing in the street. Yeah. And they stop, what is going on with this crazy guy? And she's like, he starts throwing all the dirt in the house. And, and yeah. now she's like, what are you doing? Stop, please stop. And she's like, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? And she's like trying to like control the ducks from like leaving the property. Yeah, yeah. And now she, at, the, at one point after... After Richard Dreyfus takes the trash can and uh, away from the, the the garbage guy, and <laughs> a great scene, a great scene, and you know Terry Gar, she just kind of you see her, she just she looks up, she looks up like yes. like why is she looking up? <laughs> like she is looking up, and then you know she takes off. Where are you going, Ronnie? Ronnie, where are you going? What? Where are you going? Taking the kids to my sister's. It's crazy, you're not even dressed. What? Is that what? What? It's, it's 
it's and it's it's such a great scene because after Terrigar takes off with the kids, he throws the last of the of the <laughs> garbage in the house yeah. through the window, climbs up the ladder, <laughs> goes in through the window, picks up the ladder from inside the house, sticks his head out the window one last time, <laughs> looks back, looks forth, looks around, puts his head in. Shuts the window down, <laughs> and there's dust coming out of the window. Yeah. It is perfect. Yep. If I yeah. was Spielberg shooting that scene, I would have been like, brilliant. <laughs> and we just had this really emotional scene. Yeah. And this is continuing the same storyline, but it's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> it is really, a really, really funny, really funny scene. Mm-hmm. Again, another part where that this is a movie. It accentuates my point that this is a film that encompasses all sorts of emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, is, this is a funny scene. You had a terrifying scene. You had a very dramatic scene with the breakdown of the family. Yeah, yeah. You have this the uh, the intelligence scenes with the uh, Lacombe and and the yeah. interpreter and their entourage going all these places throughout the world. And you have like what's going on with the Kadai scene and all this stuff. And then throughout it all, you have the uh, the, the the breakdown of the family unit. Mm-hmm. Right. It's there's the, again. Like you said, John, the mm-hmm. scope of this movie is yeah. staggering. So I have a question for both of you. Mm. So has Richard Dreyfuss's character been given a bit of amazing truth that he is now obsessed with following to its logical conclusions? Mm-hmm. Or have the aliens brainwashed him and are controlling him? Oh, I don't think they're brainwashed. I, I don't yeah, think he's brainwashed. I, I no. wouldn't say brainwashed. I would say that they knew he's the one that's supposed to go on the ship with them. I think they chose him. They gave him the vision, and it was up to him to pursue the vision. This is not up to him. But I don't think this is... I mean, like, he is... He says, I don't know what's happening to me. Right. He he is obsessed and can't control himself. But once he finds out the purpose, once he realizes what it is, then he's incredibly calm and rational. But but wait a minute, fellas. You're talking... He's not calm. He, or he, he was the he's one. He's calm. I don't know calm. if he's rational. He was the one <laughs> who made it far enough along. Right. Like, I mean, he made it as far as he could possibly go. He was the yeah. only one who did. But if he didn't, someone else who had gotten the vision might have been the one. Like, mm. Melinda Dillon could easily have been the one to be taken aboard the spaceship. It just happened to be Dreyfus. I mean, it had to be right. somebody who was given the vision. Right. And, and, and because of all the obstacles that had to be overcome to get to that point, Dreyfus was the, only the, was the smartest one to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Melinda Dillon had the same vision. She's yeah, watching. She you know, she has all her pictures. Yeah, the drawings and stuff. All yeah. the drawings on the wall. And she figured it out. Yeah. You know, that, that oh, I'm just going to lose the top half of this thing. And it's going to look more like the vision. Right. She's watching the news. Right. She's watching the news where where the, uh, the, the chemical spill has right. evacuated Devil's Tower. Right. And she's looking you know, with all her pictures. And, and she's staying in some seedy motel. And... And because she's looking for her son, yeah. and she's like, "Oh my god, that, that, that's it." Well, that's her motivation going. makes so she, her she's looking for her son, right? And and the question is, and this is why I just think about it is like, I believe that Spielberg's intention is that these aliens are good guys. I think and mm-hmm. that's clearly sure. what this movie is Absolutely. about. Almost all evidence to the contrary. You know? <laughs> right. I mean, like they kidnap a kid, they grab a bunch of pilots mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. 40 years ago, they, they are abducting people, and now it's like they put the world's most powerful earworm into, into these people's brains Great point. that they cannot, they, I cannot stop thinking about this thing, yep. and I am drawn, this is why I go, is like, 
yes, he's acting calm. And yes, he is acting rational in a certain sense. But is he in control of himself? Yeah. Like, would rational Richard Dreyfus from before, from a month earlier, do these things? And I think the answer is no. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, this is why, this is the, the, the nature, this is what I kept thinking about watching the movie. What's really happening here? Mm-hmm. And I don't think we actually get to know what has just occurred. Right. Other, we see a whole bunch of stuff happen that's fascinating. So, so, and, and as we say, he's gone back in through the window, and when we come back, he has built Devil's Tower yeah. in his house. Yeah, I got just one like it in my living room. <laughs> I mean, that, it, that shot is amazing. It's the greatest science experiment I've ever seen, or the largest science experiment I've ever seen. So, so the irony here is that in an effort to keep everyone away from Devil's Tower, the government, the, uh, the uh, government covert officials who orchestrated the scheme to evacuate everybody, yeah. they wound up inviting inviting the people who were invited in the first place yep. right. to go there. They advertised it. They right. advertised it. Hey, everyone who's been affected, come on down. This is what you're looking for. It's Devil's yeah. Tower in Wyoming. Yeah. Right. Uh, Dreyfus jumps in his station wagon and heads off. Yeah, he heads off. Well, no, I don't want to skip over this part that, which is, I love the way that Spielberg shot it, oh, messing yeah, with the really audience. Good. Where you see what he's supposed to be seeing on the TV, but he keeps missing it. Yeah. the whole time because oh, he's trying yeah. to figure he's on the out. Phone. Yeah, because he's on the phone and he keeps swinging around because he's trying to bring her back. He's trying to win her back or whatever with Ronnie, and and then he's like doing the things. Just I can't, and then. He sees it in passing, like we do sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, you're like, we, with the news, the news broadcast yeah, is almost yeah. over. It all and you're sudden, like, oh my like, God, he's going to miss it. Yes. <laughs> yes. And Great then point. he catches it. And when he catches it, you're like, oh, because you yourself have had that experience where you're like ignoring something for a while. And then all of a sudden it hits you and you see in the corner, you're like, oh shit, I didn't see that before. And like now, that red light or whatever that you were talking about earlier. And yeah. that is the first time in the musical score that you hear... You hear a tonally different version of the score yep. from everything mm. that preceded it. Yep. Yeah. It's like the score itself. That the ah, is that's the the motif for Devil's Tower. Yeah. Yeah. And that is something that we hear a lot throughout the rest of the film, or at least up until the light show begins at the very end. No, I have a question. Well, and when you hear that, when you hear that change in the score, you get just a classically Spielbergian shot of the foreground devil's tower in the TV and Richard Dreyfuss and rising up to reveal the full devil's tower model behind him. It's a great shot. Yes. Now I have a question for you. Yes. Both as he's driving, he knows there's a chemical spill. Does he know that it's bullshit? Because he oh. drives the Devil's Tower. He's heard the news reports, right? Isn't that where he's going, Devil's Tower? He's, yes. he's, he's going to Devil's so, Tower. He's heard the news but reports. If, so why is he going? But, but, but So what you're saying is... Does he know that, it's, that, that the government is hiding this and the blah, blah, blah? You're, yeah, you're, you're asking, if, if is he aware at this point that Be, this is all cover-up? And the reason I ask is because we see the soldiers and the helicopters and the police show up the second time they try to see the UFOs on the street, on the road. Mm. Well, Does he know the government is now part? And having sat in on the government press conference and see them lie, does he go there knowing that they're lying about the chemicals? Well, well, I think at this point, when he's matter? driving towards Devil's Tower, uh, I mean, first of all, that's a hell of a point, and that's a that's a valid one. But he's still far enough away where the if there was a chemical spill, and he believed mm. that 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 was the reason for the evacuation. He was still far enough away where it would not affect him because right. by the time he gets to a point and 
and where he can he can't go any further because the because right. uh, the you know the uh, this the soldiers are there. Yeah, and he's wearing he's wearing the mask initially mm-hmm. at first, and it isn't until he's on the helicopter being evacuated away when he takes the chance. Like I think that's when it hits him that this is all this is all a cover up that yeah. this is this is fake. Fake well, news. He, he doesn't fake news. <laughs> fake news. He doesn't put on the mask for a while. He doesn't put right. on the mask until he's with Jillian. Um, I think this relates to this the question I was asking because it's part of it is is he in his right mind? Mm. Because to me, he knows he has to go to that place. Yes, he does. He has to go to that place. Right. He's not thinking strategically or what is exact he's like well i have to be there because this means something yeah this is important i must be there i think that's the only thing he's thinking okay i have to go he's just obsessed well, i love the scene when they when he gets to the train yeah station oh yeah and this is a great a, a well-crafted scene because everyone is uh it's so crowded everyone is panicking to get out of there and you have the opportunists who are selling gas masks yeah, of even my dog has a gas mask <laughs> and uh they're selling the birds so they can, you can see if the gas is affecting right. them That's all good so, little details and, and then it's but it's what's so great about that scene is when when richard dreyfus and melinda Dillon see each other and they run towards each other and it's sort of like it's a little bit from a distance and you see them. There's no music. It's only the crowds, mm-hmm. and the, and and they they run towards each other, and they hug each other. Like really embrace each yes. other, and you see them talking to each other, but you don't know what they're saying. You yeah. can't hear what they're saying. Right. But they're so relieved. They're like, oh my god, thank God I found you. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful moment that you don't hear a bit of dialogue. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the soldier that is trying to stop you know saying no you're going the wrong way you know or or you know trying to tell her to go back to the train is that carl weathers it is i know <laughs> it. it is carl weathers <laughs> i knew it right. um and it was so the only reason i know this is because i didn't actually see it i didn't notice it and then the credits are going by and i just happen you know sometimes a name pops yeah, yeah. out and like carl weathers and i did a google search and to look at the picture yes that is carl weathers <laughs> oh, and by cool. the way lance hendrickson is in india yeah Oh, that's right. That's yeah, right. He's standing there. He's got. That. He's he's one of uh, the Combs henchmen. Yeah, or his bodyguard. Yeah. Yeah. So so okay. So then you get to they're they're back in there. They're both in the car now. Yep. By the way, I, I don't know if I'm wrong on this, but that scene at the train station affects affects me when I see it. Like she's it she is, sees yeah. him first. She yeah. calls for him, but it feels like almost. When you see scenes of train stations, a lot of people getting ushered on trains. It has a Holocaust vibe to it. And so for me, <sighs> wow! In that, I, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. When I watched it this time, it really struck me. Now Stephen is Jewish, and so maybe this is something, maybe even unconscious that he did. Sure. But for me, that's what it felt like to me. The government is lying to them, ushering them onto trains to get them out of a location. Wow. And who knows where they're taking them? It does have but a hot These two, to against it. the soldiers' wishes and pushing away. Find each other like this solace or this com- or this connection. Do you know what I'm saying? Wow! And this peace, and then they run off against. It's almost like it's, and then it almost it becomes like this teenage love story where they're running against the wind. You know, against these people who are trying to stop them from getting to where they're going to to consummate their love, even though they're not consummating their love, they're going for different purposes. But it feels almost like you're all of a sudden on this. And, and remember, Cactus Flower is like his first film, which is about with with Goldie Hawn Goldie and Hawn. William Atherton running off into the car, like in the car, chase, running away, being chased. So there's like these these elements that are here 
throughout hmm. his throughout his movies that you can sense, you know, from his own personal stuff. So the more I that's that's what struck me about the film to be, and I don't mean to make a to have a diatribe now in the middle of this episode, but for me, watching the film this time for whatever reason. I felt ashamed that I had never gotten it before. Like, really, well, I, never, it. I, I never thought of it until you just said it. Until you just said it. I mean, the overall film. Oh, yeah. And so, all these things that I'm seeing now as a more mature cinephile, as a person who pays more attention to things, for me, I felt ashamed as a, a cinephile because I should have been able to see all this already. But sometimes you see things when you're supposed to. So, I take solace in that. But watching it, I almost felt like if I ever see Steven Spielberg again, ever in my life, I want to walk up to him and just say, I'm very sorry for not getting close encounters of the third kind the first time, first few times I saw it, because I thought it was a frivolous film about a guy who's obsessed about a mountain. And this is about so much more. And in in that scene, you huh. see that. You sure. see that. They run to each other, find the connection, and it's you know, and sometimes you have to live a life to get those moments, you know? That uh, I, he just blew my mind. Well, I never thought of it that way, no, I but I either. see yeah. your point completely. It, it's so absolutely it's completely. so unsettling, you know. So anyway. Okay, yeah. So now, so we're in the car. Yes, and they're heading off. And now we do hear that Dreyfus does believe that this thing is fake. We do drive by uh, animals that are. So I have a quick. This is a small question, but are they dead or asleep? Asleep. He's okay. He says they're asleep. <laughs> this is just something I was thinking about. Is if I was going to scam a whole bunch of people that nerve gas, yeah, was loose, I would have to kill the animals. Because if everybody comes back eventually and the cows are all walking around, mm. then they're going to go, wait, that couldn't have been nerve gas. It makes much more sense to kill all the animals, which relates later on because he says we're going to dust him with the stuff that we used on all the animals. It'll just put them to sleep. And I was wondering if he was... Six hours later with a hell of a headache. With a hell yeah. of a headache. And I was like, wait, wait, is he lying? Did Larry just get killed? It's just something I was wondering oh, about. Oh, Interesting. I think that they put him to sleep. I don't think yeah, they would I don't go think that far. Yeah. But you're right about the cows thing. You're right about it. But we don't even get to that point. But we, don't, movie, but we so. don't get involved. It's yeah. a small question. But it's a fair so question. So in the car, and I love the moment where Dreyfus is like, I'm convinced that this is fake. <laughs> and what is the next thing he does? They put on the mask. They, they put, put on, on the mask. mask. That is very smart. And she has a bird. And she, and she has, has a bird. one of those birds because well, she's bought it. And then as they drive and they go away from the roadblock and they go off-road and down over this thing and over that yeah. thing, and then we have the moment where they get out of the car. Well, yeah. they, well we had the moment where they stop the car. Yeah. We had the moment where they stop the car. They see, they see it before we see it. Yep. They get out, they climb to the top of the hill, and as they are climbing, the music builds and builds, and the camera pans up higher and higher, and there, clear as day, you are there. There it is. Devil's Tower, they are seeing it with with the naked eye. I can't believe it's real. And they're staring at it. And this time, the groundswell is much more dramatic, yeah. much more effective. And here's a little backstory. Uh, on uh, April 2nd, 2013, I made a pilgrimage. I oh. made my pilgrimage <laughs> nice. to Devil's Tower. And I'm like, I have to do this. It's yeah. not easy to get to. Yeah. You have to fly into Grand, uh, Grand Rapids and then drive two hours to, to Wyoming, to Devil's Tower. Wow. So I, I, I went, and it was off-season. It wasn't during a holiday. And when I was driving on the interstate, I think it was Interstate 80, when I was driving towards Wyoming, I was the only car on the road. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, living in L.A., you never get that. Yeah, yeah. And I got a little, I got a little spooked 
because I'd never been, not even, you know, I mean, I grew up in Philly and mm. I was living in New York. I'd never, I'd never. You're not a country boy. I'm not a country boy <laughs> at all. And I'd never, I, I did get a little spooked. But I brought with me the soundtrack CD, Two Close <laughs> Encounters. So when I got off the freeway and I got on the back road, which is about a 30-minute drive to Devil's Tower from the, from the interstate to the actual Devil's mm. Tower, I put on the soundtrack, Two Close Encounters. So I'm driving up and down the hills, going around, going around, and I'm at that point in the score, in the soundtrack, wow. when Richard Dreyfuss and Melinda Dillon <laughs> are driving down right as they get to that point, and I'm driving over a hill, and as I'm driving over this hill, driving up this hill, the music is building to the point where they're walking to the top of the hill, and then I get to the top of the hill, and just at that moment in the film, when they get to the top of the hill and see Devil's Tower in the distance, I see Devil's Tower. It wasn't as big as it was in the movie, but I see Devil's Tower, and I hear, and I got so overwhelmed with emotion, I had to pull over. I had to stop the car. I got out, and it was in the distance. But it was clearly Devil's Tower, yeah. and I'm like, oh my, I'm really here. Yeah. And as I was driving closer and closer, like I kept getting out of my car and taking pictures. And again, it was an off season, so there was like nobody around. Right. And the love I have for this film, for me, going to Devil's Tower was like, I'm also a massive Beatles fan. Was mm-hmm. like going to Liverpool. Sure. It yeah. was something I probably will never do again. So I was in the moment. Every step of the way, and to be at Devil's Tower and to see it with the, my own eyes like that, I really felt like what what these characters must have been thinking. Mm. Although they have different motivations, right? You know, my motivation because I love the movie. Theirs is because they are in the movie, right? Um, <laughs> but I felt like I'm never going to forget this moment. Mm. You know, and just I was listening to the score and right on cue. When you see the big reveal of Devil's Tower in the film, it's when I had my own personal reveal with my own eyes of seeing it in the distance. Yeah. It was a beautiful thing. I, I mean, like I was a, it was a religious experience in every wow. sense of the word. Wow. Now, as you were driving towards Devil's Tower, did you get run off the road by a bunch of army guys who pulled you out of the? <laughs> out I was of your waiting. Car? I mean, I was like, I was like, really, like, I wonder, you, you know, trying to imagine what that must have been like for them filming that. Yeah, yeah. You know, because like. All the different angles around Devil's Tower, you know, you're, you're, I, I remember what they were filming at that point from this particular angle of the movie. Of course. So, so to actually be there, and you know, I, I was there by myself, and no one else was around. And again, <laughs> you know, it would have been great if, like, you know, I was with someone, right? You know, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but it was, it was just, I mean, what other film, other than Paul? Oh, right. Right. Yeah. What other film? uses Devil's Tower yep. so perfectly yeah. than Close Encounters. Yeah. yeah. So they get pulled over and grabbed, and then we have one of the strangest moments, I think, in the film, which is they're pulling them out of the car, and the birds are dead. Mm-hmm. Why are the birds dead? Why are the birds dead? No, I, I, I don't know. Was it, was it temporary nerve gas just to kill, you know, to, not to kill, excuse me, to put to sleep, you know, just to ward off the... Uh, the Lukey Loose. Yeah, maybe. Like they were. So maybe. So, oh, I think you're right. So if they had not put on gas masks, when they said mm-hmm. they didn't have to put on gas masks, they would have gone to sleep. Right. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Or, or yeah, but they, they would have gone to sleep. But, but for 
like if, if other people, right, right, because they were everyone else, all the officials, all the soldiers, mm-hmm. they, they were gas. all wearing gas masks because yeah. at that point they had to just mm-hmm. to ward off the, the temporary nerve gas, right. not the, the, the deadly gas that they were depicting right. on the news. Right. But now this is when you have your meeting with uh, Richard Dreyfuss. Like all the parts, all the moving parts in this movie, they're just coming together a little bit more, a little mm-hmm. bit more. All this time you've had this whole separate story going on with uh, with <laughs> with Francois Truffaut and Bob Balban. Mm-hmm. Now you're seeing your your antagonists face to face. Yeah. There's no protagonist or the protagonist meeting face to face. They're pro yeah, there are really no they're bad all, guys. There's no way this is not a bad guy movie. Right. Um, except for the aliens who are bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and, uh, and we have this great conversation. I love that they're asking, are you an artist? Do you hear ringing in your ears? Mm. Having headaches, migraines? Yeah. Irritation des yeux et du sinus? An irritation in your eyes and your sinuses? Yeah. Do you have hives? Do you have uh, allergies? Des brûlures sur le visage et sur le corps? You're burning uh, on your face and on your body? Yes. Who are you people? Look at this. Yeah, I got one just like in my living room. Who are you people? Monsieur Neri, please, one more question. N'avez-vous pas fait récemment une rencontre? Have you recently had a close encounter? Une rencontre plutôt inhabituelle? A close encounter with something very unusual. Who are you people? <laughs> yeah. Like it hits him that this is bigger than him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is really I mean, this is not some like government thing. Like like he's he was drawn here for a reason and they know it. Mm-hmm. Because clearly he's not the first. Right. Yeah. And so they, they they are as curious about him as he is about them. Did you feel compelled to be here? What did you expect to find? I love what he says. An answer. That's not crazy, is it? And he's screaming, you know, screaming, how do I know so much detail about this place? I've never been here. Yeah. If this is just nerve gas, how come I know everything in such detail? I've never been here before. How come I know so much? What the hell is going on around here? Who the hell are you people? Yeah, it's also great. I love the line he shows in the pictures. He goes, yeah, I got just one like it in my living room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they take him out, they put gas mask on him, and they put him in a helicopter with a bunch of other people. And again, this is Spielberg's great craft. Mm-hmm. The looks in exchange between the people and the gas masks, we know. Yeah. We know they all, there could be another close encounter story with any one of them mm-hmm. to on their journey of how they got here. And they're yeah. all looking at each other. They're all smiling like, yeah. I know why you're here. Yeah. 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 Well, and if we you got think you're crazy too. and you, then you discover all these other people who've experienced the same thing, that means you're not crazy. Right. I mean, that's... Or at least as crazy as them. Right. So there's a kinship. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Jillian is on the helicopter as well. She is. On the far end. On the other end. On the other end. And Truffaut is getting dressed down by the army. And they are asking, why'd you bring these people here? And and I love the line where he says, even they do not know why. Yeah. Like this is, because he's the scientist. He's the person interested in trying to figure out to solve the mystery. And they are as much a piece of the mystery as the sounds or the lights or the sunburn or the ships or the airplanes or anything else. Yep. They're just they belong here more than we. More than we. Um, apparently, more than we. Apparently, Truffaut was very, very stressed out about the lines in English. 
Like of course. Pre- and he did the, I'm sure you've done the actor thing, and maybe you've done this too, of repeating a line over and over. You only got one line. And of course, he's mm-hmm. on this shoot for months yeah. trying to say the line right. And at one point, there was a line he really, really hated. And then Spielberg, I think it's the Einstein was right. That was supposed to be a Truffaut mm-hmm. line. And Spielberg said, you know, I'm going to have this guy uh, do it. And here's this line he hated and didn't think he could say. And then he was pissed off they had given it to somebody else. And he went, now I know how it feels to be an actor. <laughs> uh, Einstein was right. Einstein was probably one of them. Yeah. That's, that's, that's great. a great line. Um, Dreyfus takes off his mask. Oh, right. Now the, 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 big, the big run yeah. for the hills. In an act of rebellion. Yeah. Right. And it's a scary moment because he doesn't know right. that he ain't going to die. Right. Those birds died as far as he knows. Mm-hmm. And then Jillian takes off her mask, and some other guy takes off their mask. Yeah, and who's they, still working, or uh, who I think recently passed. That guy oh, was dude. a great character actor as well. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, for yeah. Years. He was a witness. Yes, he was a witness. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. always plays yeah. like villains or judges or things yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and they run, and uh, Truffaut watches them run. Yeah, I love he that. He lets them run. He lets he them. He doesn't run. stop them. Yeah. He smiles. Mm-hmm. He smiles because they belong here more than we. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then, and then, as they're running up the hill, it's it's a. Uh, Jillian, Roy, and Larry. The character's name is Larry. <laughs> Larry. And as they're running up the hill, you know, William's score, it's like liberating. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a great... Exciting. Like, yeah, yeah, it's like liber... It's a exciting, you know, yeah. it, like it, it's rousing. Yeah. It's a rousing moment that they are free. What is And this is the only, what I would say, this is the only adventure moment in the whole film. Yeah. That's why I had, that was the weird reaction I had. It's like, oh, it's not like Star Wars Mm -hmm. or Jaws or Raiders or any of these movies of this era. This is not an adventure. No. There's there's a very brief moment right here where they're running, that helicopter's coming, they gotta hide. Well, there's no joy in it until this moment when they're running from the government, which is why I think this music, this cue matches in Jaws. When they finally go out to sea, go well. They when they're chasing the shark, right? And they're on the ship, and they go like that is because they're excited that they might catch the shark. They believe they can kill the shark, and they're excited they're going to catch the shark, and they're on the adventure. And the same thing when they're running up the mountain. It's a very similar cue. And Larry's falling behind. Mm. Never should have given up jogging. Exactly. (laughs) They're hiding from the helicopter. Larry's still falling behind. He kind of gives up. Yeah, he, he gets he gives dusted up. Yeah. or gassed. Yeah. He's like, Los Angeles! <laughs> yeah. in Los Angeles. So they're running from the helicopters, and there's this great moment where he, where Dreyfus says, no, we're going to go in there. There's a little spot behind that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And she goes, well, I didn't know that. And he said, well, that's why you should sculpt. Yeah. And I always try sculpting. Yeah, try sculpting. <laughs> yeah. That's um, a great moment. A little banter, yeah. Um, but now, now this moment so great. between Roy and Jillian, where... Now it's 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 gotten quite dark, mm. and the silhouette of Devil's Tower, and you see the lights coming from the other side. Yeah. You see the spotlights yeah. peeking, peering through to the other side. What's on the other side? What is on the other side? And Jillian's at the top, and and Roy is, he's he's exhausted, and he keeps sliding back down the hill. Yeah. But the helicopter's coming with the nerve gas, and you know she he gives one last try. And they, they, he, she grabs his hand, pulls him over. The helicopter flies by, and now again, the score is totally different. Yeah. And now, from this point, the movie becomes quite, quite, quite different in itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're both looking at what's on the other side of Devil's Tower. Do you see that? Yes. 
Good. (laughs) (laughs) And now you see the encampment. You see this encampment. This is why they got rid of everybody. This is why they spooked everybody away. And you hear the musical score, and they're getting their acts together. And they're turning on all the lights. They're bringing the lights down 60%. Mm. And Roy and Jillian are just sitting there hiding behind the rocks, just looking down. We're the only ones who know about this. Yeah. And then this is not a drill. And he goes, watch the skies. Again, second time in the film, you'll hear the phrase, watch the skies. This Mm -hmm. one's in the actual context of the movie. The announcer, you know, we have some activity coming out by the north by northwest. You see this little light show. And you see these the, 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 the lights in the sky. If you notice, the lights are flying around and they all stop to form the Big Dipper. Mm-hmm. And Roy, like, laughs at it. And it's just this little light show and that, that could have been it. Mm-hmm. But then they're, they have their backs to... A, spa- uh, a UFO that's flying up right over their shoulders. Right. And again, the the score from this point on, you talk about it being his opera, John Williams' yeah. opera. It is among the most beautiful uh, pieces John Williams has ever scored yeah. in any of his movies. And when the three of them fly over and they're situated right in the middle of the encampment, and now they get their acts together for the pop tones. And it starts off very slow. Yeah, they, they try it once. Yeah. It's very, very slow. It takes like a minute for them to do it at first pass. Nothing, nothing at all. And then they do it again, and they do it again. They change the tone a little bit. They do it a little faster, a little faster, and the comb just goes right out there. And it's like, you know, let's go. Let's go. And boom, 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 boom. I mean, it's so sublime it is like this is this is the moment where all the stuff about first contact you don't know what the aliens are they abducted a kid you don't know you don't, you think maybe they're friendly you don't know but this is where the moment of first contact was done in a way that has never been done before in film not even the day the earth stood still because mm. that was a warning i mean this is this is something so different from any depiction of first contact that we've ever seen yeah. in movies and I don't think we saw it again really until Arrival. I agree with you a thousand percent. It's one of the reasons I enjoyed Arrival so much because there was something inside me that uh, knew this already, knew this before, had seen this before, and the way it was done in that film, the reverence they had is so similar to the reverence they have for the aliens Absolutely. and trying to communicate with the aliens. And by the way, I want to say one thing here: he is more affectionate with Jillian through that entire run up the mountain than he ever is with Terry Gar throughout the whole movie. That's a great point. I agree. He, yeah. he You're right. picks her up, he holds her hand, he takes, he protects her, he keeps her... And she helps him, obviously, when he's sliding down, she helps him. But like, there's more affection here than he ever had with Terry. And it's, it's interesting to watch. It's growing without them having to make a big deal out of it. Well, and they're and also happening organically. haven't had any romance 
Right. There's a genuine right. like affection that they have for each other. Yeah. Well, and there's a lightness to Dreyfus's character. Yes. Now. Now he, once once he finally got in that car mm-hmm. and started heading to Devil's Tower, he's mm-hmm. he is now like, I know what I'm doing. I know and, what I'm doing. And now you can believe why this guy would be someone you could marry or be with or whatever. You has he has a lightness to a joy to almost a joy and a yeah. pursuit and a drive. One of the things I love is watching the scientists and the engineers that they they have obviously been planning yep. for this moment for years mm-hmm. they have the cameras they have the uh the computers they've built this huge which i love this visual metaphor for mm-hmm. the notes this huge multicolored screen right and there was something and, and this communication is now starting to happen musically what a great concept for first contact mm-hmm. you know it's like this is again this is Spielberg's genius. Like, who yeah. would come up with this idea rather than it's not meeting face-to-face, it's not through language, it's not... It is just through music. And there was something I saw years and years ago that I've never forgotten, which is when Steven Spielberg was on Inside the Actor Studio mm-hmm. and James Lipton is talking to him about this moment. And he said and he said to him, well, you came from divorced parents. He mm-hmm. said, yeah. And he said, And he said to him, what did your mother do? And he says, oh, my mother was a pianist. Yes. What did your father do? He was an engineer. Yep. And Lipton said to him, and in this moment, in Close Encounters, you brought together engineering mm-hmm. and music. Mm-hmm. And that is the way the aliens first communicated with the human race. Right. Wow. Yep. What was most amazing, if you watch this moment, I'm sure it's on YouTube, Spielberg, that had never occurred to him. That he was having mm-hmm. his parents speak together in this moment. Yep. And... My film professor taught us that. Wow. He knew even... And when I saw it in Lipton, I was like, yep, yep. And so when I saw Spielberg be surprised by it, it blew my mind. Because my film professor told us that too. Because... And that's the reason why he uses... He like a Spielberg uses suns and bright lights in his motifs. Like oh, they're always going towards something bright. It is a uh, it is for him a reflection of something better than the broken home that he had. It is always that symbol of something brighter, something better. And so all of his films almost have that kind of thing. And with this, there's a lot. The musical motifs are very important throughout his movies because of the influence of his mom. You bring up uh, the Beatles. Uh, Paul's uh, father was a composer. Right. So there's this thing that drives them. John's mother was a guitarist. John's mother yep. was a musician. There's things that drive you when with music that are without words. And this makes so much sense. And I love that you brought that up, Steve, because I was going to mention it later. So I love that you brought it up because it's, it's absolutely perfect. And it's true. And you talked about this being a very personal film to, to, for right. him being brought out to see the meteors. That this is everything. All coming together full circle. Mind is blown. My mind is blown. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Oh. It's interesting. It's always interesting to me that when an artist doesn't under doesn't yeah. even fully understand their yeah. art. And the thing is, is Richard Dreyfus doesn't understand what he's trying to create. Sure. And throughout this film, if you listen to Steven Spielberg, there's a lot of trying That's stuff. A good point. He doesn't know why he's doing what he's doing. Right. We don't know as artists. That's sometimes the best stuff. Mm-hmm. When it's you are compelled. Well, you're this too is close what, to it. Yeah. Yeah, you can't see it. You can't yeah. see. Uh, uh, yeah. It's it's a fascinating thing. And so so now it's finally coming together and we have um we have Jillian and Roy watch and they know the music too. Like yeah. they understand sort of what's happening. And she's singing along. Yeah. She's yeah. singing along. She goes, I know that. Mm-hmm. Like it's all coming together. Mm-hmm. It's like this 
this, it, it, it goes from you're, you're bringing just this, this, this global event and this personal event, and it's all coming together in one moment of this movie. Mm-hmm. And it's non-intellectual. We just right. feel it. Mm-hmm. They feel, yes, this is right. Yeah. What it means and what these aliens are and what they're doing, we don't know. Right. We just know that yes. We know the yes of this moment. Yep. Um, and then the music goes faster and the ships, the, we're playing music and they're playing music and then everyone claps and the ships go away. It's such, great, it's such a great scene, the orchestra of it all, right? Yeah. And then they go away, yeah. And Truffaut looks out and Dreyfus... And Jillian, they see the clouds. Mm -hmm. And the clouds start to form those shapes. It's very ominous, though. It is. Right? It's something big is coming. It's it's, it's building. It's swirling. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, this time, uh, it's a a rousing Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Yeah. All the ships are coming around all over the place, and it's great, and it's exciting, and people are taking pictures with their little cameras on top of all these other cameras. And it's... It's a it's a it's a glorious moment. Mm-hmm. It's a glorious moment. Yeah. And then, like there, you hear people on the radio. That was fantastic. Yeah. And then those ships go away, right. and everyone thinks. And okay. there's even a kind of big ship that hovers over them. Yeah, and you yeah, go yeah. like, oh wow, there's the big one. Right. But that's not really the big, <laughs> that's not the big one. This has all been the prologue. For this has all been the appetizer for the main course. Yeah. And this time. There's no musical score when the rumbling. Before that, there's a moment where Dreyfus wants to go down to see better. Yes. Uh, okay. Okay. All right. While all the ships are flying around. Yeah. Or uh, Dreyfus says, you want to see better? And she goes, I can see fine. And he goes, we can't stay here. She goes, I can. Yeah. And this is where maybe she wouldn't have gone. If she was the chosen one, she wouldn't have gone because she didn't have Barry. Mm-hmm. Yep. But he didn't. Yep. And he says, I, I can't stay here. She's mm-hmm. like, I know. <laughs> now, here's at that moment when they just like look at each other and they just have this tender kiss. Mm-hmm. It, it, they, it is a beautiful moment that they... Uh, I, this is, and this is another part of the film that gets to me. Yeah. Because, like, you know, he's excited. He wants to go down. She does, she doesn't because her son's not with him. Mm-hmm. And she they, she lets him go. Mm-hmm. Unlike right, Terry, Terry Gar. Yeah, right. She supports him. She, she understands she supports, him. She gets it. Right. And and instead of being, okay, go ahead, go, good luck, they give each other a really sweet, loving kiss mm-hmm. goodbye. Mm-hmm. And then that's when, you know, you get to, you know. She, piece under- resistance. she understands his purpose is different than hers. Mm-hmm. Hers is just to get her son back. His is to discover why. Right. Yep. He wants it all. He wants it all. And she just wants her son back. Yeah. yeah. He comes down. There's kind of a moment of silence. You always want to build expectation. And we certainly have in our <laughs> two plus hours of this podcast so far. <laughs> because now the moment has come. Yeah. Mothership. And it's important, by the way, that the mothership, I think, rises from below. Yeah. Because that's how you get the sense of scale, and it's unexpected. And the design of this thing is... Amazing. Yeah. Just amazing. And, and just also, like, when you see it, it's, it's rising low from behind Devil's Tower, and it is so much bigger than Devil's Tower. Yeah, it is. It's a very huge. interesting staging of the shot, because 
It's not coming down. It's rising above <laughs> Devil's Tower. And you're seeing Devil's Tower, which is already massive. Yeah. But you're seeing the mothership behind it, which is much, yeah. much bigger. <laughs> and then everyone's looking up. And you hear the rumbling, the rumbling from the mothership, and then every you know everyone's looking up, and the one of the one of the entourage guys is like, you hear him just go, "Oh my god!" He's <laughs> <laughs> like, "Oh my god!" Like even he was thrown. Yeah. And then the the music does start to swell, and then when you see the mother flip over, yeah, the reveal of the mothership in all its glory, yeah, going from upside down to right side up and then like they're all taking their places again yeah. and they're bringing the the keyboards up close this mm -hmm. time the motif sounds quite different and it's the familiar motif that we've heard yeah. spoofed in like right. you know moonraker yeah <laughs> you know other films and this is the beginning of the conversation yeah, yeah. two two things about the mothership one thing about the mothership is it comes from two design elements that Spielberg saw. The first is he was driving one night and he saw this oil refinery. And he said, I want that oil refinery to be part of the mothership. Mm -hmm. And that's the top side. That, that's the bottom that becomes the top. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is he's up in the mountains in the Hollywood Hills and he looks out over the San Fernando Valley at night and sees the grid of orange and yellow and white lights. And he goes, that's the bottom of the mothership. And uh. if you look at it, it's, it, it looks like a map yeah, you know it's that weird lit grid, and yeah. of course, um, uh, Macquarie goes okay, and that's what he draws. <laughs> One other thing you could see is as it flips over, there is a little R two D two hanging from the oh, base yeah, of sure. the uh, one yeah. spot of the mother. Right, yeah. Um, so this came out seventy seven. Yeah, seventy seven. Yeah. Did yep. you think, six months after Star Wars? Yeah, it's interesting. So the R two D two is there, but do you think Spielberg was fucking with Lucas by having that uh, Enterprise and the Klingon ship? Oh, oh, because oh, I don't Star know. Wars. Yeah, yeah. I, was, yeah. I, was yeah. I hope little, so. I was a little <laughs> dig at Lucas. I hope so. Just a little dig at Lucas, just a little, just to mess with it. Um, <laughs> everyone puts on sunglasses. They play the five tones. There's a long pause, and then there's strange deep notes from the mothership. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and then when they start playing the first three tones again, and the alien plays the last two, yeah. and glass shatters yeah, out of that so tower. Great. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. The they were running out of money. Spielberg paid for that glass. <laughs> he said he wanted it so much, and it was like five sheets of sugar glass because right. he might have to do multiple takes, and so he just paid for it out of his pocket. What? That's worth it. Yep. Yeah. And this is just this musical improv moment. It's amazing. Yeah. We don't even we don't know what this is, but it's amazing. Yeah. I don't so then, so then the conversation's going. It's like playful, mm -hmm. and then it's and then it stops. It's like. Did I say something wrong? Right. But then the doors open. And the, the light from the doors and everybody's freaking out. Like, oh, oh shit. Yeah. And that's when you see a silhouette of something coming out, of a few things coming out, and they're people. Yep. And this bookends the movie. The beginning we saw the planes. Yes. Now we see the pilots. Mm -hmm. And they're bewildered. They're... In a in a in a daze, yeah, and they have no idea where they are. They have no idea what these people are wearing, what the technology is that they are seeing, and but they see people, most likely Americans, and they introduce themselves from Flight 19. Yeah, good to have you back, soldier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
and they're slowly one by one saying their names and they're taping off the names on a missing list. Mm-hmm. That's when the two guys say, they, well, Einstein was right. They haven't even aged. Einstein was probably one of them. <laughs> and it's a, it's a really nice, but you see a little dog come sliding down mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the mothership uh, ramp. And then you see, I mean, this is another just great moment of Melinda Dillon's acting. Yeah. When she sees Barry. Yeah. Mm. When she sees him and she just like pushes everyone out of the way and she grabs him mm-hmm. and, she, you know, the, the way that they hug each, she hugs her, the, her mother, hold, the single mother holding her, her son. Her lost son. Mm-hmm. Her lost son. Yeah. Like the, reuni- the, the way they are reunited and she's so motherly and nurturing. You know, did you see me running up after you? <laughs> you know, I was running after you. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's such a beautiful moment. And then Roy is, Richard Dreyfuss is standing there. He's not scared at all. He, he, you can't get him closer mm-hmm. to the mothership at this point or to the entrance to the mothership. He just wants to go in. Yeah. And that's when Lacombe Truffaut says to him, Monsieur Neri, I envy you. He did all this, Truffaut did all this orchestrating. Mm-hmm. Yep. But he was chosen. Mm-hmm. He has all his astronauts ready to go, but he was chosen. Now the doors open, they open again. This time a different silhouette comes out. And this is a silhouette of, of something that looks very, very different mm-hmm. and is both scary and beautiful it, at it the same scary, time. Yeah. It, is. it is scary, and that's part partly is because of John Williams' score. Mm-hmm. And the way the aliens like like it crouch down, peeking, peeking out, mm-hmm. and then the way it stands upright and raises its arms. It's long arms. It's very mm-hmm. long arms, and then all the the smaller aliens come out. I think the height of Spielberg's craziness and his ability to just follow an idea, idea was his how he figured out how to do the aliens. His first idea for the aliens was to put an orangutan in a suit, which they did and did screen tests of. It didn't go well. No, I'm sure not. So that was not a good idea. Then they did a whole bunch of puppet design, but the puppets, they just didn't have the line removal. And with Mm -hmm. all of the really complicated lighting schematics, it just lit up the lights. And then what they did, which we use in the film, is... Uh, those are little girls in most of the alien suits. And his oh. feeling was that little girls move differently from little mm-hmm. boys, and that would help. But then what he did is that he did this whole thing that's not in the movie, which is that he said, I want these aliens to be super fast. So what he did was he did all this, brought in a choreographer with all these little girls, and they worked for <laughs> a month on all these very, very fast movements, yeah. very, very fast choreography. And then he also hired a bunch of mimes, who could walk in slow motion and dress them as the scientists and choreographed a scene where the mimes are moving in slow motion and the little girl dresses aliens are moving in super fast choreography. And then he filmed it with the camera slowed way down so then he could speed it up so that the mimes would now be work- walking at normal speed and the little girls would be walking, moving super, super fast. <laughs> and in this sequence, he had Richard Dreyfus on a wire and floated up into the sky <laughs> and they shot all this stuff and none of it worked. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness wow isn't that try. just crazy you gotta try things well it's just if you listen to spielberg talk at this era yeah. it's just like i had this idea and so they did it i had this idea and so they did it there's That's something why the budget kept going up by it the way did. oh absolutely <laughs> yeah yeah the government officials come up to richard Dreyfus. can we have a word with you what kind of blood type do you have yeah. you have any a, a, a history of this disease in your family i have the slightest idea and 
at that same moment, the trained astronauts in their red mm-hmm. uniforms are sitting there being blessed. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. That's a great little touch. So they're about to go up. Yeah. They're, they're about to go up, but there's one problem. They were not chosen. Yep. Yep. And there's this long line of, of, of astronauts with their sunglasses <laughs> on being marched. They're marching and yeah. it, it, they're, they're, they're being very uh, 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 professional. Mm-hmm. But there's Richard Dreyfus at the end. He's still got a scruff going yeah. and he's all excited. And he's at the end of the line. I love this. He's at the end of the line and the aliens go right past all the astronauts and go right to him at the end of the line, mm-hmm. take him by the hands. There's a bunch of them circling around him, and they're leading him in. It's, he's the only one who made it. Mm-hmm. It's such a beautiful moment when, when he's taken in, mm-hmm. and the main alien is facing Lacombe and the interpreter, and sticks out its hand yeah. and does, does the signal, and they do it back. And they're smiling at each other. And it's, yeah, yeah, and 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 Roy's last kind of backlit smile, oh. as he looks out, one last time, one last time is a rem- it's a remarkable moment in film. And he has an he has a and he sees Jillian. They yeah. have us smiling, smiling because she's happy for happy him, for yep. him that he's going to finally get what he's been looking for. Right, he's finally going to go inside. And he is happy as hell to be going. No matter what, where he's going to go, who knows? Who knows where he's going? He right. just wasn't. It wasn't just that he wasn't. He wasn't where he should be with with his family. Right. He wasn't. He he didn't fit on the planet. On the planet. Yeah. Yeah. And this yeah. is what I mean is why the film is so relatable in 2017 now because I think a lot of us don't feel like we fit within the world itself as it's constructed anymore. Sapper true. We seek solace someplace else we seek it in our superhero films we seek it in our D&D that's come back we seek it in in, uh, uh, World of Warcraft we seek it in other areas that are not the planet and whether they're fictionalized or video games or movies we seek solace to disappear in there rather than to exist on the planet now because of we just feel out of place. A lot of us do, and I think that's what really spawned the birth or spawned the nerd geek culture to explode as much as it has over the last few uh, last couple of decades. It's just that desire, that feeling of not fitting in, blown out to a massive proportion. Uh, and I do want to say two things here about what I really enjoy about this whole sequence with the orchestra exchange between the it's just fantastic it's fantastic as a as as only occur like i love music but i don't understand it as well as people who are musicians but seeing that exchange is an amazing moment and it to me the whole thing with richard dreyfus at the end with being put in the line and i was it's very chaplin-esque because and I think and I wonder if there are uh, uh, influences from that because it he almost feels because everyone else is so tall and even the women who are chosen are very tall and rigid and have the sunglasses and all this kind of stuff they're very presentable perfect specimens and then you have the dude at the end of the line the small Jewish guy who's like so right. out of place and it feels very <laughs> much like Chaplin when you would yeah. see Chaplin sure. feel and he'd be in line and he'd be the one that looks so out of place and everyone else is so important and proper excellent observation it, it, it's just so interesting to watch that and the comedy of the scene once again Spielberg's levity in this incredibly serious moment that also adds to the beauty of him when Dreyfus is taken on to the ship and just happily taken on to the ship you know 
I love it. I, I cry every time. I cry. I cried so hard when I saw it. I cry yeah. I every cry. time I see this movie. Yeah. I really do. I'm I'm always really, lose it. Never it's a really, really moving it. film. Yeah. yeah. I was so surprised how moving this film was. Well, well, and this is the. I mean, I think we're kind of at our final thoughts. Listen, th- this is a film that that here I have seen the movie. I, I lost track, but talking with you guys about this makes me want to go back and watch it again. Mm-hmm. Because hearing you talk about like the Holocaust, uh, you know, allegory and 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 just so many things that that we've talked about that I didn't even know myself, and I thought I knew everything about this movie. Hmm. This is what Cinephiles is all about, Absolutely. and this is what a movie like Close Encounters is all about. That that you could see it over and over again and still miss things and rediscover it in a way. But no matter how many times I will continue to watch the film, one thing I know is that it, I will be moved very, very deeply, and I will love it just as much as I did the first day I saw it mm-hmm. in November of 1977. How about you? For me, I think this film is a very universal film. Those of us who are artists or hear a different song than everyone else we pursue it all our lives. We pursue that spaceship all our lives. Sometimes at a cost of relationships, friendships, uh, financial success, anything. We pursue it because we love it. We can't quantify it. We see everyone else acting normal and we don't understand why we can't be the way they are and find what we think their happiness is because we're driven by something else. We hear another song like sirens, we hear that siren song and we have to go either crash onto the rocks or make love to that siren. You know, we just get driven by it. And this is what this film represents to me. And maybe it's because where I'm at in my life, the film itself really speaks a lot of what that journey is like. And I think it's very, a uh, very relatable film, very understandable film. And it still has lessons to teach us today. And I think no more so than... The unknown doesn't have to be something you have to fear. The unknown might surprise you and be more beautiful than you can possibly ever imagine. You just have to have the you just have to have the strength and the desire to get there. Beautifully told. Yeah, very well said. Yeah. And and first of all, I want to thank both of you because I learned so much in this conversation huh. and I'm thinking about this movie in so many different ways than I was when I started. And that is what, you know, great conversation of film is about. Mm-hmm. Um for me, I, I already said that this doesn't really fit into those, you know, adventure films that so much took us from the end of the 70s into the 80s. And the film, in a weird way, that I kept associating this with is 2001. Mm. Is that is that there's the personal story, which you just spoke so eloquently mm. about, that's moving in a way that 2001 is not moving. Right. But in the end, I find this movie more mysterious every time I watch it. Because I actually don't know what just happened. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this was positive or negative. I don't know what the aliens wanted. I don't know what Francois Truffaut was really doing or how he figured out what he figured out. I don't know if this is a good thing or bad thing that's happening to Richard Dreyfuss. I don't know who Richard Dreyfuss' character, who Roy would have been, had this not occurred to him. There's so much of this movie where I go... Wait, why are they grabbing these people? Where did they take these pilots from 30 or 40 years ago? They don't look in good shape when they get off that plane. What did they do to Barry? They're out of it. They're out of it. I don't actually know what just happened. And yet, I find it so moving. Because you want to. Yeah, because you you want want to. to. And because something, as Richard Dreyfuss says when he's looking at some mashed potatoes, (laughs) there's something important here. 
I know that this is important. I know that it's moving. I know that it's powerful and I will never fully understand it. Mm. I never, as much as I don't know like the motive, mm. it never occurred to me that the motive for the aliens was anything less than good. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's what the movie wants you to. I, I think that's yeah. Spielberg's intention. But it, you could argue, you could argue that that it's not. I I, I don't know, sure. and that's what makes it a great film. Uh, yeah. And that because is also what makes open-ended. it something different from what something I always thought that it was. Mm. But maybe just maybe it's not, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because any great film is one that will be open to interpretation to different people too. Absolutely, and I think at seven to ten years old. You do think it's good. As of course. you get older, you put your own life experience in there, and you don't know. And well, that's great. Because Barry opened that door with hope and curiosity. Yes. But maybe I wouldn't. <laughs> maybe yeah. not now. I yeah. don't know. Barry's brave. That's a brave yeah. little Barry's kid. Barry's yeah, and that's and that And bringing it back to that moment, the signature moment of the film, is you know this is a film that you know, five years, 10 years, maybe even 40 years from now, I'm still going to want to open the door to Close Encounters and yeah. be curious about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's what we think of Close Encounters. <laughs> of course, we always want to hear what you think. You can visit us on our Facebook page at Cinephiles, C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on YouTube. You can leave comments for us on YouTube. You can leave reviews on iTunes. Please leave us those reviews. They really help us go up in the rankings. We read everything you write on YouTube. And if you want to support us, you can do so on our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash the cinephiles. And if you were to go there, perhaps right now, you would hear a conversation with Scott Mance as we discuss Blade Runner 2049. It's well worth being a Patreon subscriber Mm -hmm. to hear that conversation. Um, As always, you can reach me at SR Morris. John, where can they reach you? You guys can always find me at The Roca Says on Twitter and on Instagram. And of course, every Tuesday with uh, the Top 10 Show and every Thursday all with Outlaw Nation both on the SK Plus podcast channel. And, and Scott, just, if anyone wanted to find you on the wonderful world of the internet, how would they do so? Just make it simple. Hit me up at uh, on Twitter at MovieMance. That's the best place to find me. Mm-hmm. All sorts of great conversations there. Scott, I cannot begin to thank you uh, enough for this conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is I who am grateful, gentlemen. This is our third go-round together. Mm-hmm. Third time was truly the charm, and the first time were pretty charming, too. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You guys are awesome. Thank I freaking you. love the cinephiles. You're the Brother, best. Brother, it's always great to spend time with you. Yes! So thank you. Thank <laughs> you so much. So, that's it for this week. We will see you next time on The Cinephiles. <laughs>